our 2016 Eternal Weekend Review on episode 59 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 59 of So Many Insane Plays, our 2016 Eternal Weekend Wrap-Up Show. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any questions or comments, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTG Cast, or TheManadrain.com. For announcements this week, we don't have very much except for a few post-champs upcoming events. Steve, you've got a new, a new tweak on Old School coming up at Udo, yes? Hell yeah. Uh, we have another Old School event in Berkeley on November 20th. But what's new about this is that for the first time, we are introducing Ice Age for mm. winter. So I know <laughs> you love winter and Ice Age, right, Kevin? Both of these things, yes. Two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> well, we thought we'd bring in Winter with some Ice Age, which happens to be a tremendous set. It's one of the great sets of the past. You know, it's a massive set of cards. Kevin, having played in the old school event, how do you think Ice Age will impact that? What are the key I, things? I, I can't I can't even begin to appreciate everything that it does, right? It's a it's a huge systemic uh, impact, right? But certain cards you must have addressed, at least in your community or whatever. Necropotence, demonic yeah. consultation, um, uh, then there's uh, there's that isn't there a better greed, basically? In the Oath of Limduel, that's a nice age. And then you get weird stuff like Jester's Cap and Brainstorm, which obviously is not the Brainstorm that is in modern magic, but still worth considering. Yeah, And things like, like, I mean, you get your first cantrips. You get Portent. Yeah, it's true. Portent might be, in some communities, preferred to Brain because of lack of shelf. Oh, sure, I can see why. Here's a question I have. Yeah. Just take take you back. Do you happen to know first card, first only card in the initial announced to be rigid from Ice Age. The, at the, the initial, when trivia. the, when the when Ice Age was, released, was created. Yeah, what, no, when oh, oh. Ice Age was released, what was oh. the first and only card from Ice Age to be restricted in that first announcement post-Ice Age? Hmm, you're taking me back. Just take a guess, yeah. Uh, it wasn't, wasn't Jester's Cap, was it? No. I'll give you uh, one more guess. Okay. You might um, not... And, and it wasn't Necro. I know it wasn't Necro. And it wasn't Brainstorm, and it wasn't... De- was it Demonic Consultation? Well, I think this is... that You're illustrating my point. My it, The answer is Zuranor, but the point... The point yeah. is that Ice Age is one of those sets that has just gradually over time, there have been more and more and more entrics from Ice Age. <laughs> <laughs> it, like, it's so fun. Like, for example, Necropotence was a type 1000, right? The year 2000. So that, 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 card, was, that card was illegal, legal as a four of for, six year, for five years. And part of it was that, frankly... Until tricks came out, there was people didn't use combo decks with Necropones for the most part in Type One. Mm-hmm. It was just an aggro or a kind of control drawn, and so people you thought know, it was fair. And they combated it with Black Vive and uh, and Burn. <laughs> uh, you know, there's just so much in Ice Age. I'm perusing it now. One thing that stands out to me right away is Glacial Chasm. Yes. What an interesting effect Glacial Chasm has on the yes. format, especially those formats where strip mine is restricted. Exactly. But exactly. I mean, there's just so much here. You, there, you you double up on your blasts, so you get pyroblast and and and, and, pyro, and hydroblast. And hydro. 
Yeah. You get Mystic Remora, which does weird things in certain matchups. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, it's it's true. I mean, Glacial Chasm in particular yeah. is incredibly good with Lich. Oh, wow. Uh, That's fascinating. So you can, yeah, you can just You just go... use your land drop to draw a ton of cards, right? Exactly. And then you can play with Zuranorb to draw cards with Lich as well. So Glacial Chasm protects you from losing the game because you can't... Wow. Yeah, and there's lots of great combos. Um, another thing that Zuranorb does that's very strategically important is Zuranorb and Landtax have a particularly effective combo. Mm. So you can mm-hmm. you can use the Zuranorb to Landtax at will and just play out all your lands. Um, you know, a, a, and then of course demonic consultation, which you already mentioned. But there's also some land destruction in there. There's Thermokarst and um, Icequake. And Icequake. Yeah, so that, um, so that pairs well with Sinkhole and Ice Storm. I mean, perhaps the most important piece of tech is the one you already mentioned, besides Necro, which we're going to restrict, <laughs> which is that people are constantly complaining about the deck. Well, now we'll have Jester's Cap to mm-hmm. answer the deck. So the deck players will have to play with at least four win conditions or risk getting Jester's Capped. <laughs> it, there's just so many interesting cards. There's another great cantrip in Diabolic Vision. Yeah. And I then you get Pyroclasm. One. Which is a, I mean, in the face Huge of earthquake, is not that amazing, but still useful. No, it's the white weenie is one of the best decks in the format, so pyroclasm is huge. Yeah. The the um the other interesting thing, I mean, it's pyroclasm certainly also helps like Urnum mid range decks that mm-hmm. have like a larger, fatter. Um, the other thing um that's interesting that's we didn't even mention that's perhaps most important about Ice Age is that Ice Age helps two-color and three-color decks get a lot more consistent without crutching on City of Brass mm, because nice. you get pain lands. So blue-white and green-red and all those decks are far more consistent, and you do, and then they're not as vulnerable to City in a Bottle. So you get a lot more color consistency, which is just well, a really nice feature. Which just Fall- further punishes the deck, right, for being greedy on colors. Yeah, I mean it's interesting because Fallen Empires is a is a is a um, a set that I've advocated for in old school because it kind of rounds out a lot of marginal strategies. Like it gives mm-hmm. black weenie and mono white a little bit more, a little bit more, right? Like a little <laughs> bit more. And and um, whereas Ice Age is a set that kind of transforms. It's the first set that transforms what you would think of as 94, early 94, early 95 type one by by inter- not just introducing Necro but all these things that wrap around. Mm-hmm. One of the more popular strategies back in the day was recursion decks that often built around Time Twister. Like you'd see like um, in the old Duelist, like the single digit issues of the Duelist, a lot of recursion decks. There was the Vercursion, you know, then there, you know, <laughs> with uh, Enchantress. Then there were just decks that you'd try to use Fast Bond in other ways to, to, to quickly win out, quickly like with Fork. Um, Zach Dolan built a ton of those decks in the Duelists, but Forgotten Lore is a little piece of tech in Ice Age that also helps recursion decks, mm-hmm. which is kind of like a targeted regrowth effect. So, lots of tech. There, there are just crazy little incremental build-around things in this format. Like, I'm really interested suddenly in Pox. Yes, which, yes. <laughs> which does incredible things, you know, and you get to play, in old school, you get to play with Pox and Balance in the same deck, right? So that seems like yeah. fun. one Balance, four Pox. Right, so I'm sure you can do some nasty work with that. And I know that uh, I know that Mike Lupo is excited to add Game of Chaos to his coin flip deck. <laughs> his coin. 
<laughs> so, now I can play Majajin, uh, yeah. Game of Chaos, all that nonsense. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And wow. And you also get some interesting additional creature control elements because I just noticed Fire Covenant, which you might think has an yeah. awkward place in old school because traditionally red black is not a it's not a controlling color combination. Those are ancillary right. colors in the deck, but I could see a bigger a Juzam deck, a bigger creature Juzam deck that could use Fire Covenant to just wrath their opponents. That's yeah, really interesting. There are a lot of cards like that. I mean, Zur's Weirding is kind of in that category of, yep. uh, you know, uh, kind of an odd. Yeah, and, and Reanimator gets a lot of tools. They get Ashen Ghoul and Dance of the Dead, not to mention big creatures. Mm -hmm. um, so I, there's a lot of strategic options to build around. I'm really excited to play it. You also double up in the vein of Hydroblast and Pyro. I don't want to spend too much more time on this, but it is exciting. Yeah, you get more is. Knights, Knight of the, you know, the 2-1... The Pump Knights, you get a whole new set of those for both black and white. So And don't forget Jockle Hops. <laughs> <laughs> Who could <Wow>. forget that? <laughs> this is fascinating. Yeah, we could talk forever on this one. Stunted Growth is a fun one against control decks. For those Ur for those Urnum Gin decks. Yeah, anyway. I mean, I think Zer the, the combo of Zern Orb and, and Lantax is enough for me. Let's just go all in on that. You know, you get, <laughs> you get a, I mean, the, 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 just powering up some older strategies is, I think, really valuable. And yeah. so we'll, we'll so, see what happens. Suffice it to say, there's something for everyone. <laughs> Definitely. Come, come to Berkeley and play some uh, Ice Age old school. Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, Ice Age is the last set. I think we're going to allow fourth edition as well, since they came out the same time, but, but mm -hmm. nothing after that. So. Yeah. Well, by way of tournament announcement, we also have a few in my neck of the woods on uh, November 13th at RIW in Livonia, Michigan. They always draw a, a moderate crowd there. And at, on the 19th in Berea, Ohio. <laughs> moderate, not a, not a decent or... <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, our RIW is doing something that not a lot of shops in the area are doing, and they're having monthly vintage. Most of the tournaments that I promote on here are quarterly, maybe. You know, there's a rotating set of shops in the Ohio, Michigan area, and occasionally Indiana that host one maybe once a quarter. But RIW is doing monthly. And whenever you do monthly, you invariably end up reducing your, your overall crowd to a, a set of consistent folks. And then, you know, a couple of people who can make their one every so often. Fair so. Enough. Yeah. That's why I say it's a smaller crowd than you might expect, but it's a consistent crowd. Good, that's and, great. And yeah, so they're doing good work there at RIW. But we need to talk about some Eternal Weekends, and weekends means we should start by talking about Eternal Weekend Paris. Let's do it. Now, unfortunately, we don't have as much data about Paris as we do about the Columbus Vintage Champs. We do have the top eight, but we don't have a nice metagame breakdown, the likes of which Matt Murray and Ryan Eberhardt have provided for us for so many events, including Champs. But we can talk about the top eight. The top eight, ironically, I don't know if this is irony or just predictability or what have you, but the structure of the Paris top eight is very similar to the structure of the Columbus top eight. There are a couple of features to point out. One is it is powerfully 
dominated by Thorn decks. There is Eldrazi in the Paris Top 8 to the tune of two copies. There's one um, Tribal Eldrazi and one White Eldrazi, which is a theme that we're going to hear recurring. And there are three Workshop decks. Two of them have been labeled as Car Shops, and the third has been labeled as Phyrexian Mud. But it's basically Car Shops without the cars, because it's a it's a big mana Thought Not Seer deck. It has two copies of Sky Sovereign. In fact, each of the three Workshop decks in the top eight have at least one copy of Sky Sovereign, which I kind of pumped my fist at because, you know, I called that in our Kaladesh yeah, set review. Yeah, you did. You shot called. I, I wasn't talking about Paris when I did it, but spoiler alert, it happened in the United States as well. So two Eldrazi, three shops in the top eight, and then three blue decks. One Gush Mentor deck, which is a Jeskai list. Jeskai, traditional Jeskai. Yeah. One TPS, which... Barely blue. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Which we here in the United States would call DPS these days. That's a dark petition list. And then one Oath of Druids list, which features as its creature base... Emrakul, the Aeon's Torn, and Gristlebrand. Hold on, I'm looking to see if there's Dragon's Breath Dragon's in here. With Dragon's Breath, there is. Okay, so this is basically Golden Gun Oath. So that's... Referring to the, the James Bond metaphor, one <laughs> shot, kill you. Yeah, so that's the structure, the overall structure of the top eight from Paris. Five Thorn decks, three shops, two Eldrazi, and three blue decks. Mentor, Dark but well, so okay, two blue decks, Mentor and Oath, and then as you said, Barely Blue, that is one combo deck, Dark Petition. And the winner for this Paris event was Jeskai Mentor, taking yeah. down Car Shop yeah. in the finals. One Gush deck in the top eight. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you said three shops, one Eldrazi, right? Three or four two shops? El- three two Eldrazi. shops, two Eldrazi. Shops and two Eldrazi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the two Eldrazi lists are fairly stock for our understanding of them, right? White Eldrazi is a Thalia list with six copies of Thalia, three and three. Pretty standard these days. The tribal list, though, does vary a bit from our standard expectations because Heinrich Storm is powered. That is, five Moxen, Soul Ring, Lotus, Mana Crypt Academy in this list, and a few a few other choices too because there is Endless One and Thought Not Seer and Reality Smasher, but there are fewer creatures in favor of more thor- uh, thorn effects, more spheres. Because yeah. in addition to four thorns, there are three copies of Sphere of Resistance in the main, and two Gites. So it's creature light, a little bit more controlling. Null rods are in the sideboard for this list, which I find interesting because if you go powered, obviously there's inherent tension with with null rod, but he kept them in the sideboard still because it's so good in so many matchups. So honestly, this top eight doesn't. There. Yeah, this top eight doesn't feature very much new or surprising technology. The mentor list is fairly stock. The car shop lists are. You know, Car Shops is a relatively new take, what with the release of Kaladesh, but there's been a lot of quick consolidation around the way these lists are structured. One or two Sky Sovereigns, you know, three-ish cars, that kind of thing. These lists are very close to each other. White Eldrazi is very by the books. Golden Gun Oath is not the most popular version of Oath right now, but still not uncommon by any stretch. And then the Dark Petition list is very, very standard. Very standard. That foreshadows then the top eight Well, but we're going to get there much later on, though. (laughs) That's right. We want to talk first about the breakup of the entire metagame, since we have great data. Again, thanks to Ryan and Matt. Thank you again. And we're going to line those up with our predictions, since that's one of the things we do on this show, is talk about our predictions and how they fared. 
But so Steve, first, but first, <laughs> we're yeah. going to talk about the overall experience of Eternal Weekend. And Steve's excited about this because he he hit this very very closely. It's it's incredible how close he hit this. Steve, your prediction for the total attendance for this event was 343, and the <laughs> and the actual attendance was 344. <laughs> which i find incredible that's just uh that's a thing of beauty <laughs> well let's spend a minute talking about that what, though. what's I'm, your not, secret not... <laughs> <laughs> well so i state to take event is that because yeah. last philadelphia we had right yeah so i think that would say oh my god we lost 100 players right mm-hmm. well we were gonna write right. that three years in philadelphia they had built up over mm-hmm. time i don't remember what the Attendance was the first year in Philadelphia, but it was approximately the same. So they built up over three years, mm-hmm. and it was just a given that you were going to lose some people who were in the region attending. The second thing is that it was later in the and it wasn't just later in the year, but it was also on Halloween weekend, <laughs> which can be a, a real kind of internal challenge for, for parents mm-hmm. who need to be home with their kids on Halloween, Halloween parties, not to mention trick-or-treating. Um and third, it's much the structure of the event this year was much harder for parents or just people who work a lot, you know, mm-hmm. and, and can't get away, because the Friday the event was Friday, and if you make top eight, you have to be there Sunday, so yeah. the commitment was much more intense. You kind of had to arrive Thursday or Friday morning very early, and then you had to spend at least three days. So it was a much more intensive commitment. So I wasn't at all surprised to see those numbers. I, I just calibrated it, saying, here's what I think the losses are going to be. They're going to be offset somewhat by other factors, like this is this is perhaps the most budget-friendly vintage format I think I've ever seen mm-hmm. since this format has been called vintage. <laughs> you know, you could argue that like Type 1 in some ways was more budget-friendly. I don't agree with that. I think this is more budget-friendly than the format has ever been, and it's 20-plus mm-hmm. year existent um, since it was called Constructed Magic. Um but, but overall, I think this was a very successful vintage. Uh, you know, it's clear that the Eternal Weekend model works compared to what the Vintage Championship got at Gen Con. The Gen Con thing worked on some level, but Eternal Weekend is just a better overall, easier thing for featuring th- this event. Um, I think had this event been on Saturday, we would have seen probably 30, 40, maybe even 50 more people Um and if this if they stick to Columbus, which is an open question despite what we've said in the past, um, I think those numbers will continue to rise over time, especially the people who couldn't make it this year, who were like on the fence or maybe didn't want to were upset about them. We'll come back into them. So yeah. I, I, I don't have a secret formula, but I I, <laughs> I, I just thought it would be well, right around there. Well, the factors that you brought into place, I agree with. And I was I was thinking that there would what be was your, more. Remind us what your prediction was for the record. <laughs> My prediction was 400. And I was expecting that there would I think be a little less of all the factors you cited, especially I, I, I figured a, a larger number of the East Coast crowd would carry over. And I also felt like there was some more excitement about the format that ha- had come about because yeah. of the success of recent champs in terms of attendance, but also the, the success of Eldrazi in the format. And I figured that that would counteract some, some of the things you yeah. cited more. But uh, clearly I was a little overzealous in that aspect. Still, the truth is, is that the Eldrazi had a very powerful effect on both the metagame breakdown and also the, the unpowered participants in the format. And just it was an overall net positive effect. No question. 
Shall we talk then about how our predictions lined up with the whole metagame? Yeah, let's do it. I, I wonder, though, if, if we you wanted to say anything more about the structure. How did you feel about that structure, about separating the vintage, moving the vintage event to Friday and legacy to Saturday and then having the top eights distinctly featured or centrally? I think that, it, I, in, in my eyes, it's a mixed, a mixed bag, mostly good. I think anything that hurts attendance is, you know, a negative, right? <laughs> In the sense yeah. that I I don't want people to not be able to attend because it's a three day commitment. I don't I don't like that aspect of it. But on the flip side, it made for I think a, a good deal more gravitas as it pertains to the presentation than the coverage and the streaming of the top eight. I like that the top eight competitors actually had some time to. You know, evaluate their matchups and think about sideboarding and do some testing and things like that. It doesn't have to be a full day, granted. Yeah. But that's just the way it is, right? You're not going to do the the vintage top eight while the legacy main event's going on. I I just think it was a net positive overall, and I say that partially selfishly because I'm the sort of person who can afford to take ben- a, a, fr- from the- a Friday <laughs> off. Well, yeah, I'm the sort of person who benefits from all of it. Basically, I can afford to take a Friday off. I enjoy just hanging out in a city that I like with my friends. I was staying at a friend's house, so I'm not paying an extra night for the the hotel. I mean, I'm the target audience for this structure, and I recognize that. And so I don't mean to say that it is just absolutely the best choice. I think it served us well this year. I enjoyed being able to watch the top eight. I enjoyed the fact that coverage got uh, that we got a lot of coverage and attention on the top eight without other distractions going on. And uh, I think it was good. I can understand people who don't like it. I can understand anyone who says, I, I just can't commit that much time to the weekend. Yeah, I can understand those complaints. And maybe we'll go back to a different structure in future years. And I, I won't be, I will not complain about those things if, if we change our, our structure going forward. Well, let me play devil's advocate. Well, actually, because I, I, I have to say on, on balance, and I feel pretty strongly about this. Okay. I, did not, I did not like that format. Okay. I, I liked it in theory. I don't think it worked well in execution. And let me just point to a couple of factors. So, so first of all, I, I think that the the placement of Vintage Championship on Friday, as opposed to being on the weekend, is is far less than ideal. I think <laughs> it does not maximize attendance, and priority should be placed on maximizing attendance. I think that it really creates a, a difficult structure because the prelim event has to be on Thursday, which makes it a four day weekend. Five if you fly in the spend all day flying in the night before. Mm-hmm. That also co- screws up kind of the placement of the old school event, which was also less than ideal vis-a-vis the prelim. Right. So I, I didn't like that. But I think that may be the most logically relevant concern, but I actually don't <laughs> think it's my biggest, my personal biggest. I feel like the separation of two days between the main event and the top eight took a lot of the steam out of kind of the presence of people in the event. In mm-hmm. a normal event, the, the crowds for a top eight would be much larger because everyone's there still. You're, you play all day and the top eight finally plays out and it becomes an endurance test as well as kind of the, a, kind of a coalescing of the community watching this event unfold at the end. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's like it becomes almost like this private event. That they, they, it's almost like they excised this piece of it out and held it on a separate kind of a separate event. I really didn't like that. I didn't feel like that was good for the community. I don't feel like that was format. I think it took away kind of some of the the traditional feel of that top eight mm. as not just being a significant accomplishment, but also an endurance race and part of a continuous whole. It didn't feel, I guess what I'm trying to say is it didn't feel either from a spectator perspective, a participant perspective, or a, a more distant analytical perspective. It didn't feel like a continuous event to me. 
Yeah. And I think I, that, I can totally that's a see big that. loss. Yeah. I, I think I I agree that having an entire day between the two is not desirable. Now, had I made top eight, I think I would have been very sure. I would have enjoyed it a it's lot. A, it's a huge <laughs> advantage for anyone who is, yeah who can prepare and really put in a lot of the work. Right. But, but I agree with you completely in terms of the flow of the event and the, and the, the I, I appreciate the fact that coverage was uh, so thorough for the top eight, meaning they they did half of the the quarterfinals event. Uh, sorry, uh, sorry, they did half of the quarterfinal matches and then both of the semifinal matches. That's great. If there was only a one night in between the two, I think that'd be superior. But yeah. now we're up against legacy I, champs, and it's. I, even, I genuinely then, don't think... Yeah, I mean, even then, though, I like the idea of it playing out the end. I mean, one of the things that came up is someone says that being on a separate day, uh, small, minor violations don't reset. Mm. I, I don't I don't know if that really matters to me or, or not, but it, it speaks to the larger point, which is that it didn't feel like part of the same event, the tournament. Mm. And, and, and the, the kind of community presence, I mean, you were there for the top eight. Did, what was the community presence like observing that event? Compared well, there to years were, past. Well, honestly, it didn't feel that different. There were, I would have to estimate, there were about 30 people who were in and around the top eight who were, uh, who I recognized as all vintage players. Now, not everybody was standing right over the, the matchups all the time. There were some people conversing during some matchups they were less interested in. There were some people actually watching the coverage on portable devices in the room right out, right next to the, the top eight. But... There was a lot going on in the terms of there were people milling around and talking about matchups and congratulating people in upcoming matchups or, or recently completed matchups. There was there was dialogue going on. I participated in a number of conversations about the nature of the matchups going on and winners and losers. So it, it felt like a small community event that had a lot more gravitas than the number of people standing there would imply. That's fair. I don't, I don't think there were... In years past, I've stood around and watched the top eights and just for logistic reasons, there are there are about the same number of people actually watching. But I know that in years past, there have been more people just in the room, right? right? We've had larger rounds of applause at the end because there were there were another 30 players just still in the room waiting to see who won. So from that standpoint, you're completely correct. In terms of people watching and participating, it was about the same. I'm, I'm glad you felt that way. I, I also think, like I said, there's an endurance element that matters in this tournament. It wasn't as it was not clearly to me as pronounced. I don't know. Oh, I didn't well, like. Yeah. I didn't it, like it. It definitely repositions the the importance of endurance. That's no doubt about that. And I I think you can go either way in terms of the value of that. I'm of the opinion that I would rather have endurance not be such a negative impact on the most important matches of the tournament, right? Yeah. But not everyone feels that way. Some people really value it as an endurance action and value their own endurance and say. They, you know, they like that aspect, and that's fair. That's totally fair. I hope, I hope next year they don't go that way, though. Well, we'll see. We don't know about the structure for next year just yet, even though we do have an announcement of the date. <clears throat> which, which is not actually, I heard, is not for. Yeah, well, uh, everyone, pay close attention to Card Titan uh, social media because there may be more news soon. All right, let's talk about how our predictions lined up then with the the overall event, and then we'll zero in and get it narrower, more narrow and narrow and look at top 64 and then 32, 16, and 8. Do you want to go maybe archetype by archetype? That seems the most logical, right? Yeah, definitely. All right. Let's just start with the top of our list then with workshops. Steve, you predicted 22% 
to my twenty <laughs> percent. Oh boy. The actual the actual metagame breakdown for workshops. This is probably the biggest surprise in the whole thing. So we're we're, we're starting off with a good yeah, one. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Eleven point seven percent. Forty people out of three hundred and forty four. Only eleven point seven percent. This is it, not just a a downturn in shops. It's an alarming downturn in my well, eyes. I don't want to overstate that. It's it's it is a it is a surprise and it isn't a surprise. One of the things that we did in our last uh, podcast in our preview show was we compared paper events with online events. If you look at the workshop presence in the last P9 challenges and those things, it's actually about this number. This number and and that's not and I think we looked at paper events too and they were all under 20%. I I estimated a. There were two factors that to say over one mm-hmm. was that we that it's almost always about 20 yeah. 25% in the past. And I thought there was a lot of new workshop printings, uh, and and we just saw the top eight from Eternal Weekend Europe. So I thought there would be a surge in shops to historic levels, but that was clearly mistaken. And, and the reason is obvious. It's because Eldrazi, Tribal, and White ate up the rest of the shop share of the metagame. So it's not surprising at all to me that this happened. I just I, I I should have weighted more those factors, but mm-hmm. um, it is disappointing in terms of my prediction. So you won this archetype prediction, uh, but you were still just about as far off as I was. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, while I am technically closest, being off by 8% is huge. I mean, this is the biggest miss of the whole thing for us. And it's a lesson, right? It'd be interesting to observe over the course of 2017 how Eldrazi shakes out. And yeah. if if this kind of 10 to 15 percent becomes a new kind of level well, for shop but yeah i mean we'll, I, I we'll think, just have to see i think that's true i mean i think it's it's clear that that when lodestone golem was restricted a huge part of those players moved to eldrazi um and and so we should have figured factored that in more i think i was overweighting the european events um but i will say and we'll talk about this later that our predictions around shops actually turn out to be true once we get to the top 64, 32, and so on. So, oh, well. so we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Yeah. Okay. So next up, gush. We we are very close in agreement here. You predicted 31. I predicted 30. The actual was 22.8 or 23 yeah. percent. Now that is pretty shocking. I I, I could have seen like 25 percent. 25 percent is the in a kind of a major event in the last six, seven, eight, especially. And and the, I predicted a lot of gush, especially this event, is because. Gush tends to be a budget-friendly uh, engine. You can play like Blue Red Delver or whatever in a kind of budget shell with Gush. You don't. Mm-hmm. You most Gush decks don't use the full complement of Moxen, so it's a natural budget blue deck if you're looking for a budget, kind of like Landstone. So I was very surprised. I mean, I think everyone is uniformly surprised that Gush is only 22% of the metagame. But I would have to say, in this case, pleasantly surprised because <laughs> that's not anywhere close to a level of dominance people have been about. Yeah. For people who are concerned about Gush dominating this event, it did not. And 22% of the environment is, I think, a very healthy number historically and present. I mean, even when Gush, like, historically was potentially problematic, it was always at least 25% and usually much more. So to have 22% of the field is Gush, I think, is kind of like a gigantic sigh of relief for people who have been concerned about Gush's presence in the format. And we'll, we'll talk more about Gush later, but right now we're yeah. just looking at overall numbers. I think I also think there was another factor that that ate into Gush's numbers here, and that is we saw a bit of an uptick in the number of Thoughtcast decks in this event. Yes, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. <laughs> yeah. So 
there's a, there's there are some competing factors here. Next up are the two Eldrazi archetypes. Now, overall, we'll talk overall second. We'll we'll go individually first. For a tribal Eldrazi, you predicted eight and a half percent. I predicted ten. The actual was eleven point seven. You you practically nailed it here, Kevin. I, I mean, even though I was only two and a half. Uh, three percent apart uh, away away from it you were one and a half percent i think it's actually a much larger margin because <laughs> it, i mean it's it's a it's a small percentage difference but it's a larger margin in the sense that you were firmly on board that there were going to be a, a really significant proportion of budget tribal eldrazi decks and i agreed with you but not to the extent that you posited so i think you I mean, this goes down as a not just a narrow win for you, but I think a solid one. <laughs> well, I'm pleased to see that the yeah that my intuition on how many people would be attracted to this budget archetype was strong. And it's not just the tribal Eldrazi though; that's the thing. So for the white Eldrazi, we were both very we we're both nearly in agreement and both got it right. You predicted six, I predicted seven. The actual was six point one percent. So the attraction of the Eldrazi, both white and tribal was we got it pretty pretty well and, and in total the actual was 17.8 percent and my total target was 17 percent so i'm feeling pretty my, good about and that mine was 14.5 so yeah. i was off by three percent but you were just a half percentage off <laughs> yeah i got it i win the the estimation for white eldrazi you yep. got it closer for tribal eldrazi and for overall eldrazi but i feel like you got you got the win here <laughs> <laughs> fair enough <laughs> Now, what about what about oath? The oath is an interesting case. You and I both came up with ten percent. The actual was twelve percent. <laughs> so this is where a little bit of the numbers that we lost in shops and gush went. I think oath was just, I think, slightly more attractive than even you and I guessed because of the matchups with Eldrazi and Workshop, and and because it won the last two events. And, those, and, those yeah. Were... There, there are lots of it. We covered those, this in that our prediction. Was baked in, those were baked into our as well. I know. But, that's the thing is we, we, need to, we need to take note of this because I think the combination of all those factors is very strong. Now, the, the fact that it, it didn't win this year will diminish the whole it's won everything for the last year issue unless it continues yeah. to win everything else in 2017. But the simple truth is, is that Oath seems to be a very consistently attractive archetype for people in this event. And that when the decks that it's good, that Oath is good against become really popular, that just continues to bolster that aspect. I think right. we, we, should, we should underestimate Oath to our peril in future iterations. I mean, t- 10 to 12% is about, you I mean, you can't estimate things that with greater, more, much more precision <laughs> than that. What's interesting, though, is the perception that people have in the room. I mean, I think people felt like, like Oath was a much larger percentage on the early rounds. And that's what a lot of people were telling yeah. me. Uh, I, and I heard a similar anecdote about how Oath was, Oath was very heavily represented. It turns out it was just normal, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe well, it was I mean, doing super well at the top tables early on. I'm not sure. I mean, don't get me wrong. 12% of the metagame is still 50 Oath decks, 50 some well, Oath decks. And I don't want to, I mean, at the risk of spoiling the, these all these results, 12% is actually the second most represented archetype. Specific archetype. So Oath was one of yeah. the most popular decks in the field. Yeah. yeah, there was more Oath than there was Workshop, which we haven't really seen except for in isolated, smaller cases. So let's keep going. What was the next archetype, Dredge? Next up is Dredge, yeah. You predicted 9%, I predicted 7 The actual was 64 And I think this this dovetails, with my, <laughs> this dovetails with my tribal Eldrazi prediction, just that I, I, I was tying these concepts together, that I thought that Eldrazi would eat some of Dredge's lunch as a budget option, yeah. and it turns out I was right. Wow, yeah. that's pretty low. I mean, that's the low end of the range. I think we t- both estimate like six and ten as yeah. 
So so that's within our range. It's just the low end. Yep, yep. All right, next up is combo, which is a tricky one, and we can talk a lot about this one. You predicted 7.5. I predicted 5%. The actual is 9.6. For me. Yeah, and I think <laughs> I think that uptick is powerfully driven by specifically by paradoxical outcome, since there were a couple people, notably us, but also notably Reed Duke, in in playing a tender, you know, storm-based paradoxical outcome list. And there was a lot of excitement about I would, his particular performance, but a handful of people as well. I don't want to overstate that. I think that 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 um, combo decks are always more represented in this event than they are in other events. Mm-hmm. Part of it is you've got people who want to just do broken things in vintage, and they come to paper events and they think the combo decks are like just generally good against a broad field. They also, I mean, last year we saw a lot of combo, so I, I th- I'll give some credit to paradoxical outcome, but I think it's actually probably only a percent more or so than it otherwise would. Just people like to come to these events with big combo decks like Belcher and DPS and stuff like that. And they do well. I mean, I saw a DPS deck that I think went X2. You know, obviously Reed was up there and um, our yeah. friend Justin Franks did really well with it at X2, I think. Yeah. Somewhere around there. So, you know, there's Belcher decks at the top table. So, no, I, I just think in, in this kind of enormous field, combo decks are just going to be more represented than they would, say, in a Power 9 event. That's my opinion. That's fair. Well, the rest of the archetypes are those that we didn't predict. I thought at, we at least put down on paper. I, 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 now I pre- know you talked about how you wanted to predict big blue or yeah. you know like Grixis control style things. But the thing is, is that Matt and Ryan's methodology for categorizing blue decks, I think, differs a little bit from your and my. Well, well, they just they just divide it into big blue troll, which makes sense to me. Big blue me being blue decks that have max artifact acceleration or restricted mm-hmm. cards, and yep. then blue control being Blue decks that um, have fewer restricted cards, more counter magic, and tend to be more of like the landstill. Or so I think that's a very sensible. It causes problems though when you get to the deck you and I played. <laughs> well, I, I I don't think so. I mean, I think our deck is a big is a big blue deck. It has okay. the big mana acceleration. Um, you know, lots of mana acceleration. It's a big blue deck in my opinion. Light, lighter on counter magic. More... I uh, it doesn't have more restricted cards. Our deck well... plays fewer restricted <laughs> cards. I well, I think I think you're glazing over some of the things about our deck there, but no, I'm not but, really going to harp harp on it. I mean, it. we have Mana Vault in there, restricted card. You know, anyway. <laughs> okay, fair I, enough. I I, I, uh, when, I when people deck, say restricted cards, I, I really don't think they're ever talking about Mana Vault you, in that you're, context. You're talking like Tinker. Key, I, I'm talking Demonic Vault. Tutor and Vamp and Mystical. Yeah, fair enough. Time Vault. Fair yeah. enough. But li- like I said, those are heuristics. These are just ways of yeah. of looking at. I I think that that distinction, Slocum and Big Blue, there fair is enough. a trade off between sort of counter magic and Mana Accelerate. So. Steve. You, when we were doing our predictions, we didn't put it down on paper, but I know you made a comment about you wanting to predict Big Blue, and I don't remember what number it was you cited, but you, I think it sticks in my head that you said 5%, but that might have been part of a range. Yeah, so, I, I don't remember the specific <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it sticks in my head that you said 5% in the context of you didn't want to forget that there's usually 5% or whatever of these kind of decks. And uh, honestly, when you say when you said that at the time, I was picturing Grixis, right? I was picturing like Duretti, Duretti like decks and and just decks that have Tinker and Key Vault, but also have you know historically Notion either Dark Thief. Confidant or Jace or Notion Thief. Yeah, yeah. that's that, that's the reason why I mentioned the distinction that Ryan and Matt have here because those that's clearly meets their definition of Big Blue. But also all of the Thoughtcasts mentor decks in this yeah. tournament also yeah. also are put in Big I, Blue in their numbers. I, I think that's correct. 
I think well, that's correct as a sorting think, or classification mechanism. Here, here's what I would say. It is a fair sorting and classification, but when you were predicting big blue decks, I'm I'm certain you were not predicting Thoughtcast Mentor in that list, right? Oh, I, w I was. Really? You, you yeah. considered Thoughtcast Mentor to be in the same category as Grixis when you were predicting? Yes. Only because I knew, I had a feeling of what we were playing, and I put that in there. Well, that's funny. Well, no one else played what we played. So... I would but, say, but, there, but, there, but the, again, Thoughtcast Mentor did win a Power Nine, so I thought there were, and, and I wasn't just thinking Thoughtcast Mentor. I was actually, let me be clear, yes, I was thinking Thoughtcast Mentor, but I also was Steel City Vault decks. Mm -hmm. I would put, I don't put those in combo. I consider those more. They're Force yeah. of Will decks that run DAC, that run Key Vault, that run Thoughtcast, and run Mox Opal, mm -hmm. and, and okay. sometimes Welders. So I was thinking kind of anything that's kind of a Mox Opal Thoughtcast to Will deck. I would... That's interesting. I find there to be more utility in grouping together the mentor decks, be they Gush or Thoughtcast, because I think there's more in common that way than there is with Grixis and Thoughtcast well, Mentor, right? Well, there is, there is again, there, that's the false dichotomy in, in one sense, is that you can do both. We can group them either way, and well, both we tell us could, different information. Well, we could, but we're not. <laughs> well, well the, bo both tell us different kinds of information, so I think... Uh, yeah. We're looking to see kind of the penetration of mentor decks. We should be looking at how many mentor decks there are. If yeah. we're trying to if we're trying to do kind of an archetype or engine based uh, approach, then I think Thoughtcast is a is a blue blue draw engine, and we should mm -hmm. group it that way. Okay. Well, so th the number for big blue in the total event was seven point three percent. That includes all those uh, big mana yeah. blue decks. So around seven for, and a half. Yeah. Yeah. The number for blue control, which are the more dedicated, slower blue control decks, is three point eight percent. That's where land go. still goes. I mean, that's pretty much. Uh, look, folks who are looking at past events, that is pretty much where things land. That <laughs> blue control is always blue control is slow blue three and four, and and kind of big blue is between I don't know usually like six and nine percent. So those are kind of like smack dab in the middle of the ranges. I think yeah. that's pretty close to what I predicted actually. If someone were to go back and listen to our last podcast, I think that's pretty much where. And then there's this other category which makes up which we obviously did not predict. But if we were to have been very it's a couple diligent percentages, yeah. yeah. If we were to been have been very diligent about well, our mathematics, we would have come up with a remainder. Well, I think in we did. I think it's... I did, and 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 usually that refers to hate bears, merfolk, and random yep. like red green aggro decks. And, well, and... I don't. I don't think we quantified it well enough to call it a prediction. It's usually like two or three percent. Is something around there. The Less. result this year was eight point five percent. Wow. Uh huh. Wow. So there's painter. There's some hate bears. There's some mono red. Oh yeah. If you put two, if you two, put two card Monty and 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 yeah, if you take out bug, then you're yep. yeah. There's a lot of le leftovers to accumulate. So it's, <laughs> that's right. I see how you get to eight. But that's interesting. So in in the future, we need to I think hold ourselves to predicting the whole list because I predict. Uh, sorry, predict is the wrong word. I believe that had we held ourselves to a full list and made sure our math actually added up to a hundred that we might have gotten a little closer on gush and shops but yeah, we also it, might have just sacrificed uh the other category entirely to, to make our that, other numbers work <laughs> that's the thing right i mean it part of the issue is that so the power nine events and some of these other events have a kind of a cleaner overall look because the fringe things just aren't quite as present because people are more i know, cued in they're more dialed in you know, mm -hmm. and so these are. This is an event that people come to once a year, and fringe things are just a, a more likely presence in these kinds of events. So that's a hard thing to predict. But mm -hmm. I appreciate the fact that you've got you've got it here. <laughs> well, let's move on then to 
how these various archetypes penetrated from the whole metagame all the way into the top eight. Do it. Looking next at the top 64 then, we'll take the same archetypal breakdown and talk about how the top 64 compared to the overall metagame. So we'll just start at the top of the list again with Gush. Remember Gush was 22.8% of the overall meta, and the top 64 it was 21.9. So almost the, the same. Almost equivalent. The slightest of reductions, but functionally equivalent in the top 64. Not so for workshops. Workshops, remember, 11.7% of the whole metagame. Yeah. Top 64, 15.6%. <laughs> so workshops already showing, yeah, a four much, or five much improved increase. performance. Yeah. That's a significant increase. That, no, from, that, is, from, that is very meaningful. Yeah, yeah, from 12 to 16. Eldrazi. This is the combined Eldrazi number, mind you, not, not differentiating. But So we'll, we'll talk about the differentiation when we get to the top eight, but not in these intervening steps. So remember, the whole Eldrazi component for the, the tournament was 17.8%. In the top 64, 15.6%. Wow. So, so a bit of a diminishment yeah, for Eldrazi, just, just a slight one. Interesting. Next, uh, I'm sorry, this list is actually in slightly different order than the original one, but it's all right. Combo for the whole uh, environment, 9.6%. For the top 64, 15.6%. Combo doing very well in the top 64. Yeah, I mean, it's the kind of deck that can, that, that will, I mean, it's a kind of a, a uh, it's a polarizing deck. It does really well in some matchups and really badly in others. So, <laughs> has a really tough time beating shops, but is really good against blue decks. So mm -hmm. Next is Oath. Remember, Oath was 12% of the whole event. In the top 64, 21.9%. 21, so it doubled its present. In the Which is crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. It's interesting. Tied, if with, you, tied with Gush for the most represented archetype in the top 64. Oath kind of feels to me a little bit like, like, like combo in this sense. If someone put a gun to my head and said, top, 60, top 64 this event, or you're dead, mm -hmm. there's a good argument to be made to be playing one of these decks that does really well in a lot of matchups and really badly in, mm -hmm. you know like like That's a good point yeah and when your matchups that you do well in are those that are very attractive to the budget players for example the eldrazi matchup yeah like like combo and, and oath yeah yeah and the odds on favorite like workshops right so that's that's the reason why oath is so attractive next is dredge overall constitution 64 point sorry 6.4 percent in the top 64, 6.3%. <laughs> so very even for Dredge in the top 64. Next is Blue Control, 3.8% in the hole, 3.1% in the top 64. Sounds about Only one representative of the Blue Control archetype in the top 64. Only one. We'll, we'll talk Big... more about that, I'm sure. <laughs> uh -huh. Big Blue, remember 7.3% of the overall 6.3% in the top 64, so roughly equivalent there. And for the other category, which was 8.5% of the whole event, only one person from the other category made it, 3.1% in the top 64. So those rogue decks just did not fare well in this event. So let's talk then about how these archetypes penetrated into the top 64. We'll try to go through the same order here, starting with Gush. Remember, Gush was 22.8% of the whole event. Top 64, 20.3%. 
little bit of a dip. So Gush is a little bit of a dip. Workshops, on the other hand, 11.7% of the whole, remember, 22% of the top 64. Wow. So they straight doubled (laughs) their representation in the top 64. That's probably one of the best performances, I'd imagine. It it is. It is. Eldrazi, 17.8% in total of the two flavors in the main, down to 14% in the top 64. So Eldrazi not doing nearly as well as Shop of the Thorn deck. Combo, remember, 9.6% in the whole of the event. In the top 64, 12.5%. So doing well at converting to the top 64 for these combo decks. Oath, 12% in the main. 18 and three quarters, so 19% in the top 64. Oath doing very well at converting into wow, the main. Wow, that's almost as good as Shops. Coming in, yeah, coming in just behind Shops. But remember that there was actually slightly more Oath, so it's still not converting quite as well as Shop. Dredge at 6.4% in the main, down to, well, down, 6.2%, basically flat, equal conversion rate into the 64. Similar story for Blue Control, 3.8% in the main, 3.1% in the top 64. And these numbers are getting a little small, mind you, so that's that's two uh, blue control decks in the top 64. Big blue, 7.3 in the main, down slightly to 6.2 in the top 64. That's not much of a diminishment, though, just because the numbers are getting small. And the other category really takes a hit. 8.5% in the main, down to 3% in the top yeah. 64. That's, that's only two in the other category that made it into the top 64. These rogue decks did not do well at converting that way. So into the top 32, I'm going to go a little faster. Gush goes from 20% down to 18.8. Just a slight diminishment. Shops goes from that big 22 up to 28% in the top 32. Gush does? No, Shops Shops does. does. Sorry, yeah. Uh, uh, Yeah, so now we're up to about two and a half times representation in the top 32 for Shops. Wow. Eldrazi had fallen a little to 14, falls slightly more to 12.5. Not doing nearly as well as shops now. Combo had risen to twelve and a half, down back to nineteen or nine point four. Uh, no doubt, probably because of the presence of workshops at the top tables. Oath went from its eighteen and three quarters back down to fifteen point six. It stopped keeping pace basically with workshops, not converting quite as well. Probably tied to a little bit tied to the fact that Eldrazi also didn't do quite as well in converting in the top thirty-two. Dredge holding strong. 6.3% in the top 32. That's two decks in the top 32 were dredge. Blue control, staying strong at 3.1, basically converting even, but that's only one deck in the top 32. One noteworthy copy of blue control in the top 32. Big blue also consistent, 6.3, so two two people with big blue in the top 32, and others stayed at 3% with one in the top 32. Now the top 16, or things really start to eat, to separate out. Gush goes down to 12.5% of the top 16. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a serious drop from the, the top 64 and 32. Workshop stays strong, 31 and a quarter so, up further, so to, has tripled up from its main deck represent or its main right, event representation. Right. Whereas whereas the exact opposites happen to Gush. Gush and Shop kind of right. uh, uh, move in directly opposite directions. Yeah, exactly. 31% of the top 16. Eldrazi takes a big jump, 25% of the top 16. Wow. So the few, not few, but those decks in the, um, the Eldrazi family that made top 64 and top 32 were heavily condensed in the top 16. Yeah. Combo falls, fell, fell from nine and a half down to six and a quarter. Again, all these Thorn decks, combo just doesn't stand a chance. Oath falls further, 15.6 down to 12.5. Dredge disappeared. 
Dredge did not make the top 16. Blue Control is now six six and a quarter percent of the top 16. That's Just one person. person. Yep. Same thing for Big Blue. Still staying strong at 6%, basically. Big Blue was consistent in its representation from the total all the way to the top eight almost with one person, which is six and a quarter. And the other archetypes fell away. So none of the rogue decks made top 16. And that brings us to our top eight for the main event. One Gush deck, three Workshop decks, that's 37.5%. Two Eldrazi decks, that's a quarter of the top eight. One of each flavor, one big blue, and one blue control. The big t- yeah, what are the big takeaways for you, Kevin? Well, we already talked about the story of how shops were underrepresented compared to our expectations in the whole of the event, only at 11.5%. And Gush also underrepresented at only at 22.5%. The, the big takeaway for me is the two different directions, as you put it, that those two decks went in their success and yeah. penetration into the top eight. Three shop decks... In the top eight, when they were only a little over 11%, that's really, really strong <laughs> performance. That, it doesn't surprise me, but the fact the fact that Shops was underrepresented in the whole and then put up the kind of top eight performance I was expecting is just makes it even stronger of a performance. Yeah, right? let's. T- I expected there to be two or three Shop decks in this top eight, and the fact that almost half as many people as I predicted showed right. up with it and it still did it, that's it crazy. Is, it is. I mean, there were three Shop decks in the top eight, two Eldrazi decks in the top eight, right? And, yeah. I mean, to me, the, the story of this event is, the and perhaps the year, is the restriction of Lodestone Golem, and then Workshops does better than ever. And, 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 El, and <laughs> right. Eldrazi, and Eldrazi's right there with them. I mean, Eldrazi's penetration was pretty, you know, continued to persist with slight ebbs and flows, whereas yep. Workshop just triple vaulted into the <laughs> into the top eight, and, yeah. whereas Gush just got clobbered. Um, and, and yeah. I mean... I don't know what your feeling was. I, I mean, we'll talk more about our specific experiences in a minute, but I mean, I played yeah. I played in a nine-round event. I faced eight shops and our Eldrazi decks, specifically six workshop yeah. decks, six. So I don't know how in a, in a tournament of 11 in nine rounds, I played two-thirds shops and then White Eldrazi and Tribal Eldrazi. <laughs> I don't know how that happens, but but it happened. Not a fun experience. Here's, here's my takeaway. My takeaway is we've restricted shops twice and it's still the best deck. I mean, it's the best deck in terms of penetration. It's the best deck in terms of overall performance. It's the best deck. I mean, it made it to the finals. Arguably, could have easily won it. Um, you know, if this if this tournament plays out ten different times, that top eight plays out ten times. Shops probably wins it six or seven times out of ten. It's, yeah, I think that's fair. It's just it's just the best deck. It's the best strategy. Um, players like Rich Shea and Hiromichi Ito played it for a reason. Gush. I think did worse than anyone. I, I I think I guaranteed at least one gush deck in the top eight, but it definitely did on the worst end of of what we expected, right? Yeah, we, we I mean we did say that if there were fewer than two, it would be a surprise. And there were. And there were. Yeah, and I I consider it to be a little surprising, but I think there are a number of factors at play, right? I think on, on the underrepresentation well, of gush as a whole factors into that, of course. Yeah. But I would say the fact that shops was also underrepresented and still managed to convert so well it's just it's a testament more to to how good shops is as opposed to gush's place in the metagame in my opinion 
I completely agree. I think any concerns about Gush are completely misplaced. And and part of it is the shop can attack you many different angles now. So the vehicle shops are blisteringly fast. It's the fastest shop deck like since even before. I mean, it's faster than Slash Panther and the Ravager decks. Of, of, it's blisteringly fast. Then the other hand, you've got like Rich Shea's excruciatingly return of slow stack stack <laughs> with Null Rod, which is really well designed as well, boosted by Inventor's Fair. Right. And then you've got the decks in between, like Montolio, who went middle of the road, who made top eight, who who I think was my my prediction for winning the entire event a couple months ago on the manager. And I said, I my prediction is that Montolio will chip. <laughs> um, right. It's uh, it's pretty incredible that you can just restrict, restrict, restrict. And then shop is still the best deck. I think there's a real question as to whether something in workshops is too oppressive right now and if so i don't know what you do about it but this data is quite clear i mean it's interesting that fragmentize was printed to help and it helps but but the shop decks have so many ways to attack you now and it's just it's really difficult to aiming at them uh, and the other thing about them is that they just ruin the parade of everyone who wants to do anything else in the format. <laughs> I mean, their paradoxical outcome is really bad against workshops. Uh, Leovold is really bad against workshops. Campbell is not that great against workshop. Um, anyone who wants mm-hmm. to do anything new or interesting or fun, I suppose Duretti is good against them. We didn't see any Durettis <laughs> at all. Uh, I don't know if you did, Kevin, but I didn't see No, I didn't see a single one either. So maybe now's the time to build a Duretti deck. <laughs> but... but <laughs> But uh, maybe. Yeah, it's it seems like my big takeaway is that shops are still the best deck year after year, and perhaps better than ever. To me, this felt like it was going to be 2004 all over again, where at the beginning of the year in 2004, Trinisphere was restricted, and then it won. There it was punctuated by winning the major Star City Games events. There was the Roman stacks. There was the the various versions of of stacks, and then the kind of exclamation point was Roland Chang winning the Vintage Championship that year. I felt like that was going to be, this year was going to be like that, but it didn't quite play out that way. It came pretty damn close. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you and I had, I think, similar experiences in terms of the metas we faced. Mine wasn't quite quite as one note as yours, but even though Shops was only 11.7% of the main, I still faced it three times in the Swiss. And how I mean, many so times it was 33 percent of my metagame, and I faced Eldrazi so twice. So five, five so of your nine. <laughs> I was five out of nine to your eight out of nine. Yeah. At, and again, these decks combined are less than like what? So the shops were 11 percent. Eldrazi was about less than 30 percent. So they. they yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you and you and I collectively faced it 13 out of 18. <laughs> so, well, whatever. That's I. I yeah, I'm not complaining. Well, but uh, that's just the vagaries of how Swiss tournaments work. Well, right? I'm not, I'm not going to let them, everybody has to face let the Swiss way that easy. <laughs> 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 I, I'm not going to forgive it for what I had to go through. The gauntlet nice, of pain. Nice. I literally faced one blue deck, I, a Jess guy mentor. I dispatched. Yeah, I only played against two blue decks. Yeah. Should, um, it, the, this the isn't thing your that, grandpa's vintage I, sorry, I just, event. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> the, yeah. I, I will say that it's disappointing. I am disappointed because I am not currently Vintage Champion, but it's also disappointing because the deck that we chose is a Paradoxical Outcome deck, but we don't get to be a Paradoxical yeah. Outcome deck against these Thorn yeah, decks. Yeah, so unfun. And that's just, that's just unfun. Yeah, it's exactly the word I was thinking of. That's just unfun. I wanted to have more fun. Than <laughs> but anyway. We'll talk about our deck in a second, but let's talk about the top eight deck. 
So let's go top down on the top eight decks and talk about some of their salient features. Our winner, Joe Bogart, was playing Landstill. But not just Landstill, right? He was playing Emrastill. This is Emrastill, <laughs> right? And so, Steve, you saw this in action in the VSL. Um, yeah, a lot Rich, of us did. Rich Shea, I think, played this in the in, in playoffs. And this is a Rich Shea deck. It's a pretty cool deck. I mean, it's a Mana Drain deck. And we haven't seen a Mana Drain deck win the Vintage Championship in, God, how many years? Since since uh, Mark Lanigra? Mm-hmm. And this is the only Mana Drain deck in the top eight, probably in the top, who knows, top <laughs> Possibly the top 32. <laughs> Mandarin yeah. is not a card that sees a lot of vintage play these days. We should clearly state that this is the first time that, that Landstill has won the vintage championship. So True we continue we continue our kind of trend of of different archetypes winning this event, which is kind of fun. Yeah, <laughs> this is a this is the first time we've seen that. This deck is really cool. It has, as we all noticed, Emrakul was the big finisher that actually won the tournament, so that was pretty cool. That was pretty but flavorful. Also, yeah, but it also has Moat, which is a one of the staple features of the deck in Brian Weissman's The Deck. So mm-hmm. we have here a kind of derivative version of the deck winning the Vintage Championship, oh, all of 20-some years later. <laughs> right. So <laughs> pretty sweet. Right. And aside from the Emrakul, which is fun technology, there's not too much unique about this list here. There's a oh. lot of the, the usual suspects in terms of the removal encounters and land package. So... I would simply it's, point out that yeah. um, the Landstill deck has a decent matchup against Workshops. It's not great. Yeah, and, I, and that, no, I. <laughs> you, I mean, you, I, we, yeah, it's the one of the best decks you can play against Workshop, frankly. I think in, in you, terms of blue deck. Yeah, and uh, people who might not appreciate Landstill, you have to understand that just the sheer amount of of mana sources that you have means that you get to exercise some of your more expensive removal cards like energy flux is a really big one right you get to exercise cards like energy flux that several other blue decks modern blue decks don't get to the gush decks of today especially right we're we're so used to deck blue decks having these cantrip engines and really small mana bases that's the strength of land still in the workshop matchup is the fact that you can reliably hit your land drops you have some trumps in the form of mana drain and uh, and and, and crucible right yeah so you've oh, got some. Sorry, some, Crucible's definitely a trump. Yeah. yeah, you've got some tactical trumps too, but also you just have this this and, enormous mana base that kind of circumvents their removal and allows you to play some some higher mana cost answers that are haymakers. I mean, we we saw you're exactly right. We saw a lot of Landstill in the VSL. I mean, I saw Eric Froelich played it one time. Um, Dave Williams played it in the play-in tournament and very almost nearly got there. He he got very unlucky against an Oath deck, <laughs> in which he couldn't find like the tur- like I think she had like turn one Orchard Oath, <laughs> yeah, and like he had turn two Cage or something. I don't remember what the situation was, but um, but th- this deck is really good against everything except I think Dredge, possibly. Oh, yeah. Oath. I mean, it's it, it, I'm sorry, it's probably okay against Dredge, but Oath and Dredge both present problems because you have to. Get your answer. Have your answer. You don't have a lot of ways to to search it, mm-hmm. um, and you have to be able to resolve it quickly without a lot of mana acceleration. Yeah. So. One of the reasons why the cantrip-based blue decks are so popular, among several, is that they have this capacity to draw into answers, right? Quickly. You can, you can have things, a sideboard yeah. that has two or three copies of Cage, and unlike Landstill, if you're faced with a an early oath, you have a, a much greater chance of being able to dig into it and find it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Land still has to play that. in for the long game in every almost every matchup, and as such, can have issues with early threats. Anyway, we're not saying anything it... that people don't know about what about control decks, though. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting though that this deck is 
also probably slightly disadvantaged on Magic Online because it takes a long time to win. Mm. I mean, your your win conditions are few and far between. And if I recall correctly, in the finals, the players finish game one after like the 45-minute mark, which would mean someone's about to time out on Magic Online if right. they were playing at that pace. Right. <laughs> so let's move on and talk about the second-place deck by Jacob Corey. Now this is... He was 8th place in the Swiss. Yeah, to... yeah, and and there was a ninth place person who missed top eight on breakers too. So this is the seventh, eighth, and ninth places was contentious. <clears throat> now this is what we would have called in prior years Terra Nova, basically. This uh, is I, I don't this agree is with Null that. But I I hear we I hear you. And why I, why don't Ter- you agree? Well, Terra Nova to me has like all the man lands and and dismembers and was focused on really fighting oath. I don't see this as as much of an anti oath deck, but but I I I, I actually th- kind of view this more as a stacks deck, and it's the logical progression of stacks, which is stacks cannot. The stacks is a really weak card in modern vintage. That's why it hasn't done very well. Mm-hmm. And so, how does Rich Shea, who I think designed this deck, compensate for that with Keith Grimm? Is you you go all in on Null Rod, which is really counterintuitive because Null Rod is really bad against gush decks. It's not that good. Mm-hmm. But but Nullrod is obviously really good against big mana decks and paradoxical outcome decks, but it's also really good against vehicles mm-hmm. and and the shop the traditional shop deck. So this is a shop deck that I think was designed to beat shop mirrors. Is my take at least yeah. in this version. He's not playing the um, quite what Rich Shade designed because he doesn't have the uh, the um, ensnaring bridges main deck. Right. Unless it's a unless it's a, pr- a typo. No. But uh, but it does have all the rest of the technology, including Inventor's Vare. So I agree with you about the this deck being a good metagame position, and I think that I, I don't know exactly what Jacob played against, but in in total, this deck is it, it just preyed on most of the themes of how things went for this event, right? A reduction in gush, yep. uh, a, a minor uptick in Thoughtcast decks. Yep. Uh, some a little bit of a breakout of paradoxical outcome decks, uh, a healthy representation of big blue, yeah, and uh, and the shop the other shop decks in the room were heavily tilted towards the car shops, the vehicle based yeah. archetype. All those things conspired to mean that this, uh, I think Jacob was rewarded for his metagame positioning here. How does he not? How does he not have bridge though? I. You'd have to ask him that. <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I mean, he has plenty of other g- gas against the, the wide creature decks, right? There's three tabernacles in the sideboard, in addition to dismembers and ratchet bombs. So I think he must have just concluded that bridge was not necessary for what he was trying to accomplish. You know what's interesting, and I didn't even think about this, but you're, he does have the two Muta Vaults. Muta Vaults in, in uh, factories plus three Crucible does give you a kind of a nice defense against a lot of these like Eldrazi strategies. Mm-hmm. I mean, that kind of gets you a, a pretty long way, I think. It does. And also, this is one of... This this deck includes two Worm Coil engines in the sideboard. There's one Metamorph in the main. These are things that help you mitigate these those creature matchups as well. Yeah. Null Rod is obviously at its worst against decks with absolutely no power, but, yeah. still, but you can mitigate that post-sideboard. And plus... You know, when push comes to shove against a match, an opponent who's playing endless one on turn one or or, or um, Eldrazi mimic on turn one, 
if you play Smokestack, your Null Rod is almost as good as any other permanent at just stacking them out when you're the one that has access to three Crucibles and a Metamorph to copy your own Crucible or theirs and Inventor's Fair to go find your Crucible, right? Yeah. I mean, this, this deck has yeah. a lot of inevitability even in those matchups that are 100% permanents. <laughs> we predicted no Inventor's Fairs would, would appear, but we were proven wrong on that one. That's this true. Is the first, this is the first Kaladesh card we've seen in this top That's eight right. so far. And I did see a handful of lists both By before way, and during this event with Inventor's Fair, so it seems like people are really attracted well, to the, it as a one-of. Well, we talked about Rich Shea doing well with it on, on Magic Online. I talked to Blaine Christensen at the old school event, and he said he thought Buried Ruin was much better. Interesting. <laughs> but, but, uh, but Montolio said he thought Inventor's Fair was one of the best cards in his deck. So... Really, really interesting. And there was some interesting play with Inventor's Fair in the finals, which it's it's difficult to set <laughs> up the scenario because it was deep into a, a game three, but they're it in a position... It definitely put a... Yeah. Yeah, they're in a position where both players had Crucible active and were not actively wastelanding each other because nobody wanted to give up the tempo, really. And Jacob pulled Inventor's Fair off the top, which is quite strong when you've got active Crucible going in enough mana to fuel it. But at the same time, there was a standstill in play. So he had a really interesting tension to tease out with regard to what he got with Inventor's Fair and how he yeah. played it. And He had to he, make a critical decision. He had to make a critical decision. And there was also a Jace the Mind Sculptor in play with several counters. I think nine counters maybe at the time. But yeah. Jacob, had, but Jacob had one Revoker in play naming Jace the Mind Sculptor. So Jace was no longer active. And there was Moat in play. <laughs> so Jace Moat Crucible versus Crucible what? Inventor's Fair Revoker, basically. What an amazing game. <laughs> and, yeah, it was a really interesting and dynamic situation. We could talk for years on it. At the, in the interest of time, we will not. But suffice it to say I that encourage Jacob... encourage you to go watch it if you haven't yeah, seen it. That's yeah. right. It's available on coverage. Go watch it on their, on their Twitch channel, Card Titans. <clears throat> Jacob opted to get a Phyrexian Revoker with his first Inventor's Fair activation. But he didn't play it. Then on his next turn, he replayed the fair and got another Phyrexian Revoker and didn't play it. So he took this long game strategy of building up Revokers because I think I think he was respecting Jace the Mind Sculptor a great deal, but he was also respecting Standstill a great deal. And at the time, Joe's hand was relatively small because he had been fate sealing Jacob and not brainstorming. So I think Jacob wanted to build up a critical mass of cards, of threats, and he chose Revokers to do it. I think because they were redundant answers to Jace, which was at risk of ultimating relatively soon if the one Revoker was answered, but also I think because they were relatively cheap threats so he could play a few in a turn and and hopefully try to resolve Smokestack later in that same turn, down, planning for the future. It didn't work out in his favor, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. But that was a really interesting turning point involving Venter's Fair and Crucible in that matchup in the final. So who was third, Kevin? Third place ended up being our Thoughtcast Mentor deck in the top eight, piloted by Brian Palace. Yeah, I drew against that guy last year. That's right, that's right. He played pretty much the same thing he played last year, just kind of like a Thoughtcast Mentor type deck with a, a the random Time Twister. <laughs> well, th- I, I view this deck as kind of an intersection of Mentor, that is Gush-based Mentor, and Big Blue. Because he has, clearly he has mentors, but he only has three thought casts. He's not playing the the cantrip game with this deck at all. Well, he he is all in on Sensei's Divining Top, though. He's got three. (laughs) That's right. Sensei's Divining Top. He's counting on that synergy. But he has some interesting choices here. The 
three tops have incentivized him to play two voltaic keys which is interesting yeah, yeah and, he, he i thought one of the weirdest plays of the entire tournament i watched in a competitive match was when he forced a will to protect uh, a key in the top eight i don't know if mm. you saw that play no i didn't that's, see that particular that's, one i've never seen anyone do that unless they had time vault imminent you know? right well he this is clearly a time vault deck and he has a time vault and a copy of tezzeret the seeker he also has two remoras yeah i was just about to get to that i find that to be the most interesting feature of this deck is that i i'm a big fan of remora two is an unusual number usually you want three or more but in the sense that perhaps he was predicting this event to have a significant component of workshops in eldrazi which everyone would and then a significant component of just big blue and blue control players, like it always kind of does. Yeah. And I mean, in Remora which... is how he can compete against that. He's just splitting the... Yeah, exactly. So it's an interesting choice. I would I would expect that the two is a metagame call, because you don't want to draw, you don't want to draw them against Shops and Eldrazi at all. Because it's usable on the play against Shops because they have so many non-creature turn one plays, but it's still not good because you can't afford to tie up your mana. Interesting, interesting to note... He... He has uh see, he has two fragmentized in the sideboard. So the first Kaladesh card of uh, the second Kaladesh card we've seen here, and the first instance of fragmentized. That's right. He has some really interesting sideboard choices too. Brian does. He's got Toxic Deluge, which I have to believe is for Eldrazi, but he may also bring it in in the mirror. Not the the mentor kind of. He also has one copy of Ensnaring Bird. That has to be that has <laughs> to be a cool trump tech. against Eldrazi for when he gets Tezzeret, right? Yeah. I really like that tech, actually. I like it yeah. as a kind of all-purpose... I really That's like right. it. It might have gone well in our deck, because we can just win by Herculesing ourselves and go off. <laughs> That's re- that's really interesting. It could have been, yes. Interesting to note that he has a lot of the usual suspects from a black card standpoint. He's got Yawgmoth's Will. He's got Vampiric and Demonic. He's got just he, a little bit of that, yeah. But he doesn't have Tinker, which I find to be very interesting, That's especially weird. when you That's have a really sideboard weird. ensnaring bridge. Yeah, and you've got Key Vault in your deck. Yeah, very interesting. Mm-hmm. So our fourth place list is our friend Hiromichi Ito on so, <laughs> Car Shops. <laughs> for anyone who hasn't met Hiromichi, they did a very brief interview. Randy Bueller did a very brief interview with Hiromichi that I think almost perfectly captures his personality. <laughs> I mean, he is gregarious. He's fun. He is um, immediately sh- like wants to show you his cards. Um, so I think it was in round three or four. They did it like a two minute interview. But if you can find it, I highly encourage you to go check that out. <laughs> I, I really hope that video is out there. I didn't get to see it myself. I hope I can go back and watch it. Uh, so I had the, me- yeah, I, I was just going to say, I, I, I agree that everyone should watch it if it's available. But I had the pleasure of chatting with Hiramichi on a handful of occasions over the course of the weekend. And he is just a delight to talk to. <laughs> he he's always has a good attitude. Uh, he's funny. In the top eight, in the top four, that is, he was paired against Jacob Corey. And in game one, he mulliganed to two. Oh, he mulliganed to two. He, he got so unlucky. His draws were just awful, just oh, one one after the next. But he was he had the best attitude about it, I think, of any person I could have ever seen. Because he was... He was he was kind of shouting. He's like down to four, and he was slamming his deck. <laughs> this is not out of anger. You have to understand. I mean, he was very animated, but it was not out right. of anger. No, he he's was very just animated. yeah. It's funny. His he's his a... deck. So he's playing just to keep you in suspense no longer. <laughs> he's playing a uh, car shops deck with four fleet real cruiser and one sky sovereign console flagship. Congratulations, mm-hmm. Kevin. You were correct yeah. in predicting one in this top eight. Yeah, So but that's the bo- most... Sky Sovereign makes appearance in both uh, Vintage Champs top eights, uh, Paris and Columbus. 
He also has Porcelain Legionnaire, which he's liked for some time, and he played in the Asian Vintage Championship, where I got to hang out with him all weekend. Mm -hmm. um, but he also, his tech, in the video he talks about his tech, is Sword of War and Peace, which is there to, for, to combat mentors and pyromancers. <laughs> and uh, it's just And also he, fight removal, right? It fights Plow yes, and plow Bolt and, and Ancient Grudge and everything. And Fragmentize. Yeah. Pretty insane. Ingotchur, yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of, sort of War and Peace, is, it, it serves two purposes, right? He has a lot of creatures on the ground. He's got Porcelain Legionnaire, he's got Revokers, Foundry Inspectors, the Fleet Wheel Cruisers. They have Tramples, so it might be slightly worse with them. But but my point is is that in an environment do, dominated by tokens, which is one of the things we understand about the Gush decks going in, is they're all either white or red. Sort of War yeah. and Peace means this creature is unblockable by the Can't traditional tokens in the format. And that's a big deal when you're swinging with maybe, uh, maybe you just play a Fleet Wheel Cruiser and it's got haste and trample, but then you already have even something small like a Revoker equipped with this sword. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's upwards of eight damage that's really hard to block unless you pile up a bunch of tokens in front of the cruiser. And and it also just and, completely and the sword has fits... additional additional damaging capacity yeah exactly too. It, it it fits the theme of this being blazingly flat fast yeah i mean i saw this the, i faced this deck and and I, I took it to a third game and in my game i very nearly won but the turn before i was about to win he had two fleet wheel in play and no other creature and <laughs> i was tapped down because i played mentor and a bunch of tokens and he plays two ravagers emptying his hand and just activates both of them and tramples. So yeah. these decks are capable of winning very quick. And this deck kind of can put the final nail in the coffin by mm -hmm. winning, by just racing. Um, and, and that's what this does here. Let's just not forget, though, also, this is third and fourth Kaladesh card. And in our predictions, we are remiss. Undoubtedly get to this when we get to our report card. We mm. did not review Fleetwell Cruiser because no one suggested it. So mm -hmm. um, we did talk yeah, about... It's, it's amazing. In that six-hour Kaladesh epic, we still actually managed to leave a card out. <laughs> God. <laughs> <laughs> we both were bullish on Sky Sovereign. It yeah. appears um, the best card, the best vehicle appears. It appears to be, but I have to say, I won't be surprised if we get to a near future where Fleet Wheel Cruiser leaves these decks and Sky Sovereign stays in. Because Fleet Wheel Cruiser yeah. is it's very akin to Slash Panther, and we saw what yeah. happened over the course of a number of years <laughs> to the Slash Panther technology. It's it's not com uncommon for decks like this to ebb and flow in terms of their aggressiveness versus controllishness, and Fleet Wheel Cruiser is exactly the kind of card that has to get the cut when you need to be more controlling, controlling in a mirror matchup. Yeah. the first, yeah. But Sky Sovereign doesn't have that issue. Sky Sovereign is still a very controlling card, and this... it, it plays multiple roles. But this is exactly the kind of deck we were talking about. We expected a surge in shops yeah. because of vehicles. Yep. yep. Congrats to Hiromichi to for back uh, back to back top eights. He's the only one who did it this year and yeah. last. Pretty cool. He comes all the way from Japan and then crushes every year. <laughs> yeah, he's a perennial force, and, and we'll be seeing him next year too. I'm sure. I hope. So the fifth place deck in terms of finish is very noteworthy. This is Derek Gallagher's Tribal Eldrazi. And in addition to being the sort of tribal Eldrazi we were expecting, Derek <laughs> is the top finisher for the budget prize. <laughs> oh man, this, this is exactly I mean, what we're talking about. This is exactly it. This is a this is an interesting um, budget list because it doesn't match Jake Odrazi exactly. Derek has made some really, really interesting choices here, and some of them I I can't even conceive of how he got there. But he has two copies of Elvish Spirit Guide in the main, so we're keeping with the budget theme here for acceleration. That's not that surprising, right? Right. He has one copy of Fairy Macabre in his main deck. 
so weird. <laughs> I, and, you know, you can see the no, utility a, of the thing, definitely. right? Definitely. It, it has its purpose in multiple matchups. It, it disrupts crucibles in well, the mirror and the workshops. It disrupts dredge. It disrupts, uh, uh, f- uh, sorry, uh, delve in a number of archetypes. It disrupts obviously Yong Moss Will and other things that are specifically graveyard based. But I'm I really question putting a single copy in the main deck like this. Well, here's one thing I will say about it. It doesn't give you much of a chance. But it does give you a tiny chance to beat a moat. So you have Urborg. <laughs> you have Urborg. To, you know what I mean? If you, <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, you can play a 2-2 flyer and, and go to town. And you can also make it uncounterable with a cavern. So Okay. Um, That's funny. Yeah. I, I would... I mean, that, while that is strictly speaking correct... And then you can correct, protect it. You can protect it with Eldrazi Displacer if anyone tries to... So you could get into a situation where you have a late game, right? Well, that's true, but I would... I would posit that Worldbreaker is a far superior card at filling no that anti moat no role. So no I don't want to overstate that. It's clearly correct. I don't. I would be surprised if that was a major deciding factor in their yeah, construction. No, I mean, <laughs> I mean, Fairy Macabre is just one of these kind of things. It, it serves a lot of a lot of small roles in a lot of matchups. It's and... possible he never used it. We don't know. I yeah. mean, he could have. He could have used it as kind of like an anti Snapcaster card anti jace for its prodigy card yeah, yeah sure i mean with yeah. the with the popularity of jace Finn's prodigy sure that's reasonable and think about too you and i have played a, a fair number of mentor versus eldrazi in in tournaments or testing one of the one of the key trumps that mentor decks and pyromancer decks too have against eldrazi is just that that big mentor time walk turn right and sometimes the way you do that is to walk early and then find mentor and find jace Finn's prodigy and set up that flashback time walk yeah yeah and and Fairy Macabre is a, is a huge trump to that. It's it's cool. He's also got some weird things going on. He's got Helm line in the sideboard, but only one Helm. Mm-hmm. So I guess if he brings in the four Ley Lines, he thinks he just might need a faster... Well, there yeah, it is. I, I think that's the logic there also. Anytime you're bringing in four Ley Lines, Helm is, is a kind of a fun additional trump Random. card. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, in addition to those... Uh, sorry. Other than those interesting singletons we cited, he also has one copy of Spatial Contortion in the main. Which is pretty uncommon. That's the one it, of the two. Well, yeah, that's the one of the two cards that once we reviewed them and did our, our report card, it didn't do nearly as well as Warping Whale. True, but I'm sure it's covered by Jake Odrazi's book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sure it is in much detail <laughs> and <laughs> with much humility. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I that's that's not fair to say out of context. I'm laughing because I saw for the first time the back cover of the Jake Odrazi book. <laughs> yeah. And Jaco has taken a number of famous quotes and inserted himself and his and his book in the context of the quote. It's hilarious. It's it's, it's really 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 funny. Yeah. <clears throat> so that's the reason I said that. Uh, so otherwise, like, congratulations to Derek. Yeah, yeah, congratulations to Derek for a, a really super strong performance. That's awesome. And this Proving is. You can play a, yeah, is, I was just going to say that. A. This is, but this is. I mean, I don't want to undersell that. This is a breakthrough. We haven't had a budget deck in the top eight of champs since there was champs, have we? There I mean, may have there, deck without there may, Boxen, there may like have been one really early deck. on. Yeah, for but like 10 years I can't ago. remember it. But in, I mean, in the modern era, no. <laughs> to to coin a term that doesn't have much meaning, in, <laughs> in in the last decade, right? This this has not been a thing. We, this is no. This is unprecedented. And True. fifth place, about, you know, at that, right? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty amazing. In sixth place, we have Joe Brennan, our lone gush representative in the top eight. And he only has three copies at that. But those of you who have been listening to the show recently might recognize Joe's name. He was the winner of Eternal Extravaganza 5 with this same deck. 
Yeah. <laughs> now, I'm I don't have it I don't have it card for card 75. If he if he made any changes to the sideboard, I would have to do some studying here. But the things that stand out about this deck, it's 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 Gush Mentor, and as we addressed when we talked about his first place uh, performance, he has th- only three mentors and a yeah. single copy of Vendillion Click, <laughs> and he has he has his his uh, Planeswalker package is one Jace the Mind Sculptor, <laughs> two Dak Fadens, and one Narset Transcendent. Yeah. This, this is a really interesting list. I mean, there's a lot of things. He's also got a main deck Caracas, which stood out yep. to me that from the Eternal Extravaganza. I, I have to say, I was very impressed with Joe Brennan um, when he was on camera. He gave and his play. His play was amazing. His interview was amazing. His ability to explain and justify his decisions, his card choices were also very, very impressive. Um, but his conclusions just elude me. I mean, I understand how he got to them, arrived at them. It's it's basically, he took a deck, he's played it over and over and over and over again, and just over time tinkered to where he's gotten to where he's gotten. Mm-hmm. But it goes almost counter to every principle of design that I believe in, which mm-hmm. is that you maximize on the best, you maximize the best cards, and you don't play one and one, you know, two ofs and one ofs like this. Like he's got two preordained, right? And three, yep. he, 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 and two he, probes. He's got three Jace, Vince Prodigy, two DAC, Faden, two probe, three mentor, three gush, three misstep, and then a ton of singletons. And I just don't know how he arrived at all these, you know, these conclusions. Obviously, I arrive, I understand it at a, uh, I mean, I understand it in the sense that he got here over time, but from yeah. a logic perspective, it doesn't entirely make sense to. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I think the same thing is true of his sideboard, like two pithing needle, you know, as opposed to what, like, you know, is his plan against dredge is really weird to me i mean he's got three rest in peace and two pithy need um and, and two, two priests two priests right i mean yeah. it's just it's a weird ratio of everything yeah. um but i well, trust it i believe that he's getting maximal value out of this i just feel like two preordains is really low but on the other hand on the other hand he's got full moxen so he's got the full artifact accelerate he's got a lot of hedges so he even said in the in the interview, he said, "I've got click." For... It also is just generally disrupt. He's not all in on mental. I mean, there's a lot, a lot that makes sense here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he's clearly become very comfortable with his list here, right? Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Winning Eternal Extravaganza and then making top eight here. Those are two. That's two impressive back-to-back performances. And you know, logic be damned, it's it's hard to argue with those kind of results. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, there's it, a weird thing in Magic where exper- I mean, so the kind of model of science that we have. In, in mind that's taught is the synthesis of experimentalism and rational but he very much exemplifies the what i'll call the practice of experimentalism which is you mm-hmm. play your deck over and over and over again and you tweak it over time until you get to somewhere where you never would have expected it or anticipated it at the outset you know it's just a totally different place to me you just look over this list and it's just a series of oddities but <laughs> i i trust his judgment <laughs> i believe where he, he's going you know i mean i i don't play well. with less than four gush <laughs> but well, I, but let, I, yeah. let's be clear. I mean, the the oddities here are not in the sense of individual cards. No, no one of his cards is is strange or unusual. It's just the the configuration. No, it's not. Yeah, in the in the numbers. I mean, two preordained, yeah. two Gitaxian probe is pretty strange. It <laughs> I is. mean, it's pretty unusual, but it works for Joe. And uh, I I predict that he's going to continue to play this list. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's and, also interesting that the singletons give you a lot more options with jace friend's prodigy mm-hmm. so and i like mystical tutor i've used mystical tutor in all of my gush decks recently he's got one to help him find a lot of these so 
And he has that, one copy of Balance, for example. That's a pretty big incentive to play with. Definitely. Yeah. Pretty cool. Well, good work, Joe. And for, for those aspiring uh, Mentor Gush players, I would encourage you to look at this list, but maybe not copy it exactly. Because yeah, it, you're, yeah. It, in order to, if, if, you if have you're to have trying to come to the archetype, yeah, you're, you're missing a ton of experience. So if you've got a lot of time on your hands, go for it. But you might want to copy a list that's a little more stock with a few more four of. I've got a few of those in my gush breed to look at. <laughs> <laughs> Next up in seventh place is the one and only Andrew Marketon. No, no. The one and only Montolio. <laughs> Randy Bueller says, I will refer to, the, refer to this guy as Montolio. The, the great Montolio. <laughs> the great Montolio. Well, I mean, you said it earlier, Steve. Montolio was your odds-on favorite to win this event, and he didn't disappoint, right? I mean, the top eight performance is highly respectable. Yeah, this was months ago. I posted on the Manadrain in response yeah. to something Nick Detweiler said. I said, I really think workshops are the best deck, and I think is the odds-on favorite has the better odds than anyone else this tournament Mm -hmm. that was three three or four months out and he did not disappoint by top eighting this event he did disappoint by not winning it but he didn't (laughs) disappoint by by actually doing really well um in his deck he talked i talked to him a little bit about it he decided to kind of shy away from either these extreme approaches that are Mm -hmm. either the vehicle approach or the richet approach and he just kind of went right down the middle with just almost what he's been playing all year he he yeah i mean there's not much more to say about it it's just kind of what he's been playing all year right yeah those of you who have been following along for the past year have seen a list this list or one very close to it piloted by andrew yeah. and um yeah the only... there, there's not much to say about the construction except for what you just alluded to about his cho- why he chose it yeah the only thing that's different i think from the deck i played in the vsl which was his list is that he cut the third hanger backwalker for a main deck phyrexian metamorph so mm-hmm. we're looking at very marginal changes in the main deck. Yeah, and I also spoke to Andy at some length about why he chose this particular list, and it basically comes down to the the comfort and the consistency. He felt that the list was, you know, had good uniform power. He wanted to play with Thought Not Seer because he thinks that card's very good, and he didn't want to take the approach that the vehicle decks have had in cutting the temples. So. It was a combination of factors that kind of just led him back to where he had been, uh, to my understanding. And he, he enjoyed the consistency of the temple and the power of Thought Not Seer and, you know, the just the general power that this archetype has provided all year. It's still clearly consistent and good. Definitely. And in, that, and in his hands... the best decks. It's right. And in his hands, I would dangerous. expect no one to do better. Was He was first in the Swiss, so he's... Yeah, he did pretty good. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. All right, last but not least, we come to Michael Van Dyke's White Eldrazi. Now, this list is... No, it's White Eldrazi. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He, he did, yeah, it's a very good, strong performance. Uh, I would say that there is not much unusual about this list, except for maybe a couple things in the sideboard. But the main deck is pretty standard. What with four copies of Thalia, Garden of Thraben, three copies of Thalia, Heretic Cathar, and the rest of the usual suspects in terms of the Eldrazi, with only three containment priests in the main. There's not much else to say about the main. It's pretty straightforward. Sideboard has some interesting... Yeah, Sideboard has some interesting choices. Standout for me is one copy of Mangara of Corridor. <laughs> Corridor, yeah. Uh, sorry, Corridor. Man- Man- Mangara of Corridor. Which is, has, been, <laughs> you know, has been a card that has shown up a lot in Death and Taxes style decks in Legacy over the years. Maybe not much lately, but it's been around in Legacy for quite a while. Some interesting technology, I think, borrowed from Legacy, which gives this deck a flexible answer to 
to a number of permanents. And I'd like to point out and the interaction with Eldrazi Displacer means if you get enough mana, this becomes just Vindicate on a stick. So that's <laughs> that's pretty good. It's not it's better than Vindicate actually. You know, it exiles. It's uh, it's unmake on a stick. So it's a good answer to moat. And if you can get it going in the mirror match, it just becomes a trump to anything your opponent plays aside from their own displacers. But otherwise, this is pretty straightforward and strong performance by the White Eldrazi deck. Definitely. I mean, we have all of the... It's interesting. At the end of the day, right, we have three Eldrazis and two shops, but basically they're all different. We have the White Eldrazi, we have the Tribal Eldrazi that's completely budget. Mm -hmm. We've got car shops, we've got the Null Rod Stacks deck, and we've got the kind of what you call Terra Nova, and we've got the Ravager Thought Not Seer deck. So we got the whole spectrum of shops in this top eight. Shops and Eldrazi. <laughs> they That's just, a good point. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that the way. The whole rainbow. <laughs> Is it, yeah, almost every way you could build a, a Thorn of Amethyst deck, <laughs> right? That's, uh, that's effectively colorless. Uh, yeah, we've got all the flavors here. There are three different th- uh, kind of Thought Not Seer based decks, even though more, more there are more Thought Not Seers than that, right? But there's the the Tribal, and then the White Eldrazi, and then the Thought Not Ravager builds. I guess that's four, right? Because Car Shops has Thought Not Seers does as it? well. I think there might... I think there's oh, no, three. he doesn't. Yeah. Yermichi's build does not. Yep, there's only three Thought Not Seer decks, you're right. It's just really interesting. Yeah, you take these five lists, and there's basically any three of them have something in common. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But there's all these different levers you can pull in these in these Thorn of Amethyst-based decks, and Thorn is maybe the only thing that they all have in common. One of them doesn't even have Black Lotus in it, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's just... The only thing in common is Thorn of Amethyst and, and what? Uh, Ancient Tomb? Well, I guess in Waste and Strip, right? Yeah, no, it's... Wasteland, Wasteland Strip Mine <laughs> and Thorn of Amethyst and Ancient Tomb are the only thing that all these decks share. Interesting that you mentioned there's a lot of Wasteland in this top eight. Um, a lot. Yeah. There's, oh, that's right, because one of the blue decks is, it, is what, a Wasteland like six deck. Wasteland decks or something? <laughs> yeah. And Joe has the full four Wastelands and one strip in his list, which not all Landstill builds do. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think at the beginning of the coverage, Andy Probasco, who was co-hosting with Randy, made the observation that he thought Ancient Tomb is the best unrestricted card in the format. And Randy's like, well, that can't be possible. It must be Force of Will. <laughs> and he kind of laughed, and it was it was an entertaining exchange. And and <laughs> I was certainly sympathetic to Randy's point at the time. Had I watched it at the time, I would have been. <laughs> but uh, it, but um, <laughs> it's interesting that um, no one was laughing about that point at the end of the tournament. You know, it's like, well, Andy may be right. <laughs> I mean... If you look at this, that's kind of the the lever, right? I mean, that's the that's the thing that all these decks have in common that allows them to accelerate out. Now, I'm not saying they sh- Although, I'm not saying they should restrict Ancient Tomb, but it does appear to be the common element. It's interesting though that Derek Gallagher's budget list only has three Ancient Tombs in favor of one City of Traders. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Which is, is interesting weird. hedge in preventing the, the damage build up to yourself, right? That's really interesting. I guess it's because he has so many other accelerants. He's got the four Eldrazi Temple, three Ivukin, and and uh, so on. So, Right. You, you want to know one feature I just now noticed that is, I think, a little bit comical, and that is Strip Mine. 
Strip mine is in seven out of these eight God. decks <laughs> <laughs> because because land still clearly plays it strip and mine. also strip mine might be yeah it also, might be the most played card in terms of appearing in all seven decks right Black Lotus it, Black it, it Lotus is. is not <laughs> is tied with well Black Lotus it's tied with strip mine yeah there's Black Lotus <laughs> seven Black Lotuses in the top eight too how funny and, and Jaco would say don't get you know so don't get uh, smug thinking that. It's just because this guy didn't own a Black Lotus. According to Jaco, Black Lotus is suboptimal in that deck. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) True enough. So shall we move on then and talk about what this all means for the future of the format? Definitely. So there are some obvious trends here. The big trend is the tremendous success of shops. I think we both expect that to continue forward. Wouldn't you say so, Kevin? Yeah, there's no reason it shouldn't. I I would expect actually a bit of an uptick in terms of the average tournament. I I would expect more shops in the average tournament than these large results are showing in terms of the total portion of the metagame will probably graduate closer to 20%. Yeah, I think I think we're gonna see more shops going forward, and probably a little bit more Eldrazi since they both made top eight. I mean, I don't think we've hit a ceiling on Eldrazi, and I don't, and we certainly are far from the ceiling on shops. Um, I don't think this is the high watermark for shops. Shops, like you said, were only 11% of the metagame. There's a lot more room for them to grow. People now, the evidence is just undeniable that shops are probably the best deck in the format. I mean, it's overwhelming, mm-hmm. and attacking shops is gonna be really a, a, a major chore. Blue decks. <laughs> I think that a, the, a lot of the interesting dynamics that we speculate out of Kaladesh, like the Leovold questions, all these questions are going to be pushed to the side to some extent as the colorless decks kind of battle it out to see how that all lands. I mean, blue decks are, for the first time really ever, not the primary battle in this format. It's not. <laughs> it's the battle among the it's the b- battle among the colorless decks. If you want to, the white colorless decks, white slash colorless decks. Mm-hmm. That's where the format is. Um, I. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I suspect that I would like that the gush decks here to rebound will not actually rebound because because the power nine events, the online events are not going to reflect this event in a lot of respects. Yeah. So we got to bear in mind that 17% of this event was budget decks unpowered. Mm-hmm. That's not what happens on Magic Online because, as you, everyone knows, power is not very expensive. Yep. So, so gush decks are going to be bigger. I don't want people to misread that, though. I, I mean, so if gush decks are 28, 30% of the next Power 9 metagame, that doesn't mean that gush decks are on the rebound. It just means that there's a different structure to this event. Yeah. Is, is, is that your take as well? Well, I think that's an important interpretation, right? Uh, that this deck, this environment, this tournament is unique among tournaments is another way to yes. put it, right? We, yeah. it's, that's why we have fun predicting it is because there are so many factors that we try to, to balance and the, the, the Eldrazi was kind of the biggest catalyst for change that this event has gone through in a while in the recent, you know, last few years. And you're right in that you won't see this exact breakdown in any other setting that it happens day over day or month over month online or in paper. Yep. You, so you, do you expect to see Gush do really well in the future or what? What's your expectation? Um. It's it's a little bit more. The more things change, the more they stay the same. I feel like <laughs> well put. The, 
Well put. I, I don't think this event reveals anything that you and I didn't already understand going in. It just highlights certain aspects. That's all. It highlights yeah. how important Eldrazi is to the format, both from a budgetary standpoint and also from a success standpoint. This is, you know, it's a standout year for a new deck in, in terms of the top eight, but in overall performance and the budgetness, all those things combined. But also, it, it's just, there's no... It really is. It's a new deck. Yeah. Basically single-handedly created by one set. <laughs> it's Wild. true. All these Eldrazi. Yeah. Are, yeah. But there are also other competing factors, other new cards, right? The Kaladesh has been good to the format. I think in terms of percentage of success, it has been best to shops. But yeah. but there are still other new Kaladesh cards and some other things that haven't really think, established themselves. I think every Leovold deck I saw was four-color yeah. in the tournament. And I just think that Leovold is not where you want to be in a field of all this. I, I couldn't agree more. Oh. That's why I didn't bring a four-color Leovold deck to the event. Uh, I think that Bug still has major structural issues with dealing with Gush plus Mentor. The issues yeah. that even well, no amount of main deck hate cards can help you, sur- you know, surmise, surmount. I've tried bug lists. There were just three colors that had main deck illness in the ranks and main deck engineered plague, and they're just not consistently good enough against the gush decks. You can tweak them to beat shops pretty well because bug is is super good at that, but you just can't beat bug and shops consistently. I'm sorry, gush and shops consistently. And this just before we get sorry, I just want to say this event bore that out. The highest placing Leovold in the in the whole event was 43rd place. That's not. I mean, (laughs) that's not a terrible performance by. By J, uh, by sorry, that was by uh, Joey Sassino. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that. Sorry, Joey. That's a good showing by Joey, but for the rest, for the card and the rest of the people who might want to play Bug, that's not very good. Yeah. Um. And we didn't even get to the rest of the top 16, but there were a lot of more White Eldrazi and workshops in there. Yeah. Um. The, the there are a couple things I want to point out to people who are trying to project this forward. One is that ninth place was Kelly Oath, and again, that's a deck that does oh, does not exist online. So if you're trying to prepare for an online event. Uh, Oath is not going to be quite as pronounced as it would be at this event. Oh, yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I think is critical is that um, the same thing is true for Dredge, for, not for Dredge, for Storm. Storm is, again, overrepresented in this event than it will be online. I actually think the opposite is true of Dredge. I think Dredge will be better online mm-hmm. than it is here um, yep. for lots of reasons we talked about in past events. So I think pretty easy to forecast where the format's headed. I think we're going to see a, a slight uptick in big blue decks like our deck and other decks that like that, like of the frame. Um, I think we're going to see a slight, a very modest uptick in Landstill. I don't think that, <laughs> that win, this victory is going to be a breakout for Landstill. I just no. don't. It's, uh, But I think that a lot more shops than we did in the last couple. A little bit more Eldrazi, um, a little bit less Gush. Um, there, it's notable there's not a single Pyromancer deck, I think, in this top 32. So, really? I didn't uh, notice that. Pr- I knew it was in the top 16, but the whole top 32? Yeah. That's, yeah, really, that's really noteworthy, given how strong Pyromancer had been doing online lately. And, and again, especially against shops. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's it's just... Um, and um, so I think that, I think it's pretty easy to forecast. A little, a little bit more dredge, a little bit less co- uh, combo, a little bit less gush, a little bit more shops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, compared to the regular kind of online metagame. Yeah. Um, and, and things should shake out and, and play out a little bit over the next. But let's let's talk about our deck, Kevin. Let's talk <laughs> about how, how we arrived at the Paradoxical. We'll note that Reduke did pretty well with Paradoxical. The highest placing Paradoxical outcome deck was uh, Preston Cordy, who is a guy who, he got 10th place. He does not play Vintage. He used to play at the 
the mean deck opens that I organized in Ohio, he came up with the, I think the Westward. He plays like once a year. <laughs> this is not a guy who plays much magic. And I think that actually tended to be a, a, a trend at this event. Where there's a lot of people well aren't, let's say, um, kind of up with it. <laughs> well, that's one of the things we know about the, about champs is it that pulls some once a year folks out of the woodwork. There's also, but there's some format, right? There's not necessarily a lot of it. Mm. That, oh, I, I don't know. Anyway. It's hard to say what that is. <laughs> it's not. This is not my favorite vintage format right now. I, I don't think I've I've hid that, but I, I'm not really thrilled with the kind of overwhelming presence of colorless workshop decks in this environment. Fair <laughs> enough. It's a little. It feels a little bit oppressive. But let's talk about about this paradoxical. What made you want to play this deck, Kevin? Well, a handful of factors. One is I was I was attracted to paradoxical outcome just because of its raw power. It's it's totally fun. So just so folks know, we both played Kevin and I both played the same deck and we both tweeted out our deck lists. Yeah, it's so we'll, it's blue white paradoxical outcome thought cast mentor deck basically that maximizes cantrips and mana accelerants uh, with with mentor. <laughs> How did, go ahead. Well. I was attracted to Paradoxical Outcome, and I wanted to, ju- just as part of my diligence in preparing for this event, I put together what I thought was, you know, after our set review, we talked about a handful of things, but I wanted to get a baseline for how aggressively you could simply build a Tendrils deck with, with Paradoxical Outcome. So I put together a, a four mox Opal, three copies of Tendrils kind of Paradoxical Outcome deck, and discovered that it was relatively consistent. It, was, it did a very good job at turn twoing but without much defense. You and I, in our set review, I think identified the the strong interactions between Paradoxical Outcome and Top, as well as Defense Grid. And so I put those things into my first build and found that it was it was pretty good at being aggressive and pretty consistent, but it was also pretty fragile. It, it d- didn't have a lot of the resiliency that Dark Petition does by being yeah. tutor-based, as a, since this yeah. deck was just draw and mana based. But then you came up with the idea of going with the, the mentor build, just the basically straight mentor build, right? You know, we're just drawing cards and making mana and making tokens here. And it turns out that that build happens to have a good tactical and strategic positioning in some key matchups that the straight combo yes. build can't hope to do. And th- not to put too fine a point on it, but basically, as I alluded to earlier in the show, against the Thorn decks, we just become hardcore mentor decks. We take yes. out Paradoxical yes. Outcome, replace it with removal, a lot of removal, in the form of Fragmentize and Hercules Recall and, and occasionally Plow. And then you just try to be the strongest mentor deck you can be by stopping their key trump cards like Null Rod and, and to a lesser extent, the, the Spheres. So I, 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 I just yeah. really enjoyed it. it the mentor has, has obviously been my wheelhouse for a while, and Paradoxical Outcome's way fun. And when it's working right, <laughs> this is actually way more fun a mentor deck than the, any of the past ones. I got two. I got two turn one wins in the Swiss with this deck, which is not what it's designed to do. But boy, is it fun! When you fan open that, Bo- se- both involve time. Well, yeah. Wh- I, I want to ask wh- you specifically about that, but let yeah. me make a comment before you describe those, just to okay. get, set this up a little bit better. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we both agree on is that mentor is one of the most insane cards in the format. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about of mentor matchups is that in the mentor matchup, you want to mentor harder than your opponent. <laughs> there is no deck in the format that mentors harder than this deck. It's true. In fact, one of the things that we that I observed pretty quickly in testing, and I was a little bit surprised that you jumped on board the deck as you did because you had a lot of interesting decks, was that you don't want plowshares in the mentor mirror mm-hmm. because you are just so prolific in generating monk tokens. Yeah. I mean, it's not unusual if to, if you were going to the unusual to, to the extent possible. It's not unusual at all 
to have 40, 50, 60, 70 Monk tokens in play. <laughs> like, that would not be an un- a weird thing when playing this deck. Yep. I mean, it's just a simple function of resolving, say, two paradoxical outcomes with a Mentor in play, and that's where you are. You're at 340 damage. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that's just what happens. Yep. In fact, it's so comical, and I... About a month ago, I tweeted, a couple weeks ago, I tweeted an image, a screenshot of me with like probably 50 Monk tokens. LSV played our deck Magic Online event this week. You can go watch his video and you can see how this plays out. But it's actually comical on Magic Online. It's actually difficult to play because there are so many triggers that hit the stack. Mm -hmm. Even if you set them all to auto yield, if you have two mentors in play and you play a paradoxical outcome, returning seven or eight cards. Every mox that you play generates two new triggers that you have to set to auto yield. Mm-hmm. And if it takes, let's say, a second and a half per auto yield, that's ev- for every spell. That's like 30 seconds. Just That's like a minute just to get from paradoxical outcome to the end of that step uh-huh. in your turn. <laughs> that's like a minute. And, and if you only, it's like a minute off your clock. It's crazy. So you actually, if you're playing it online, you don't even come close to maximizing. You just try and win as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, in paper, you need D20 and <laughs> multiples, yeah. and you need to logistically show. Uh, so what I did in, in playing this deck is you have a, a mentor, mentors, and I just want it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then a mentor token that shows new, not a mentor, a monk token, yeah. because you can't actually use. It doesn't actually make sense. You, you're so prolific at generating monks, it does not actually make sense to keep adding to, actual tokens to the board. It, yeah, you would need a prohibitive just, amount of them, and it's hard. It's yeah. too hard to evaluate visually. <laughs> Yeah, it's really crazy. <laughs> it's true. So, so with that said, Kevin, tell me about your turn one wins. What exactly happened? In well, both of them? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 not that difficult to imagine, right? Uh, yeah. One of them, I have, mox, I, mox, mox, I have a very vivid memory of fanning open my opening hand, and it had Sapphire, Opal, and Mana Crypt. And with this deck, there is no better <laughs> gift <laughs> than fanning open Sapphire, Opal, Mana Crypt. It is such a good feeling, and you never bottleneck it blue. Yeah. You got everything. You got, and and yeah. sure enough, that hand also had Paradoxical Outcome in it, and I can't even remember what the other three cards were. So you probably drew three cards, yep. and then you drew a couple of Moxins, six, seven, on the next Paradoxical Outcome. Oh, uh, it was it was very and much like that. Yeah, it was it was three cards, and there was a Paradoxical Outcome, and at least one more Mox in those cards, and then I think it was a Cantrip. So I think I preordained into another Mox. And then paradoxical outcome for five or six, and then drew into another paradoxical outcome and, and the mentor. So at that point, you've got enough mana. You just play mentor outcome, replay all your mocks, and then you, you, you make seven to ten tokens with that play by itself. And then time walk was in the next one, and that's your turn yeah. one win right there. I had a turn. I had a couple of turn two kills, and one of them was where I just forced my opponent play, mm-hmm. whatever it was. And then I, I think it was against a shop. Obviously, it was against a shop deck since I played eight, eight, eight <laughs> of, of those. Of course, it was. <laughs> um, and I, I, I um, played. I think I paradoxical outcome maybe five. And then I played it, and I played it, just replayed all my mana, including a mana vault and a top. And then I activated the top, hold the top mm-hmm. on this priority, activate paradoxical. The second paradoxical outcome was for eight. And then of course I like thought cast top uh, preordained, and I found the third. After a little, a lot of digging, like with probes and everything, mm-hmm. and the third basically was like as many as I wanted, <laughs> but I stopped because you reach a point where you don't actually want to draw your whole deck. In that turn, I drew I think all but like I played the third paradoxical outcome for like maybe 
15 or 18 <laughs> and the last one for like five because i wanted to leave like five cards left in my library <laughs> so, so that's that's what i did i played like three mentors and all that and i know I, I wanted i left one mentor in my hand i don't know why but i did <laughs> and uh you yeah. didn't want a bottleneck it, on it, mana. Yeah, so I just you know time. Walk. All I had to do was find the time walk. Um, well, but it, it you have the it's not very far off. Draw your entire deck, critical mass, mm-hmm. and then all I have to do is time walk. And impossible for people to stop you. And <laughs> it's funny, you know, you have properly identified your role in a matchup when you're holding Hercules Recall against Chops, and they have a yeah. they have a, a well developed board of multiple permanents, and you're actively considering Hercules in yourself. <laughs> That's right. That actually so comes em- up, and it came up for <laughs> yeah, me just... in the Swiss, is I'm holding Hercules, looking oh, at my yeah. opponent's board and looking at my own, and I have enough mentors and tokens to, that I could actually just kill them by Herculesing myself. And that's well, let me crazy. Give you a good example. Let me give you a good example of that. So um, one thing that we already said, but I'll make it clearer, is that unfortunately in the workshop matchup, you sideboard out all of your paradoxical outcomes because your entire strategy is just to play a mentor and then play two cantrips a turn. Mm-hmm. Right, two spells a turn, maybe like a mox, a cantrip, and a probe, thing like that. A, a mox, a thought cast, and a probe, or whatever. Yeah. A mox, a preordain, and a mox. Like your goal is just mentor and two tokens a turn, two uh, prowess a turn, and two spells a turn, and you'll get there mm-hmm. um, if you're doing that. Um, that's why we sideboard out the paradoxical outcome. But imagine you have a Hercules in that kind of scenario. Like let's say it's your upkeep, and you can Hercules yourself to replay. You know, it, like they have Tangle Wire, let's say. You can Hercules yourself, and then you re, you play a land, you play a Mox, you play a Mox, you play a Mox, you play a Mox with the Sphere in play. That gets you so much further than if, you know, we're Herculesing their Sphere and their Tangle Wire off the board, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then only get... playing one Cantrip on your turn, maybe. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the, the, the other thing I just so far is that this deck, and one of the first things I had pointed out to you, Kevin, is that this is not a, like a Gush deck. Mm-mm. Gush decks are really cabined by sphere. As long as you can get, as long as your opponent doesn't go turn one doubles, you're going to be in good shape because you're going to go land mox, 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 right? It's like <laughs> really hard for them to do to to bottleneck you unless they have double spheres or a null rod. Mm-hmm. And and I mean that's the beauty of this deck is that I've been playing gush decks for years and sick of dealing with sphere effects. This deck really doesn't care about sphere effects. The only card that stops paradoxical outcome. But you can easily accelerate out the mentor, mm-hmm. and then pretty readily play through a, any number of established a number of mocks and lands in play. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's problematic is null rod, which is why we have the basic planes and four fragment ties in the sideboard on top of the Hercules recalls, the three Hercules recalls. And I think LSV's tech of steel sabotage in the board, which we considered mm-hmm. on top of fragmentize, is probably a good move as well. To just to combat null rod. The other thing is, I faced multiple, many null rods, th- at least three null rods in the tournament. I beat Keith Grimm, who played Rich Shea's null rod deck, and I beat null rods when he played them, just destroying them, forcing them, whatever. Mm-hmm. The one time I lost to a null rod was in the last round, and it was a mistake on my part. I had a mentor in play, and he resolved the null rod, and I had generated some numbers, and I drew up two Mox Opal, which I could play through his... By the way, <laughs> he... Even though he was playing Tribal Eldrazi, he had Chalice of the Void in both games one and three. Mm. <laughs> this restricted, so it felt like, you know, whatever. And he was playing Null Rod. And in game three, his Null Rod resolved. I wasn't able to force it. But I did I did draw basically two Opals and a Probe with Mentor in play. And I made a very, very critical mistake where he had um, uh, 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 two creatures that I could have traded with my mom that I didn't 
because I forgot that one of them would die. His 3-3, I forget whether which of those Eldrazi it was. Kevin, you might remember the 3-3. Three, three, I don't really remember was the XX one or the... Um, is there another 3-power Eldrazi? Well, there's a 3-2, the Matter Reshaper. That, that might have been it. Um, anyway, I got into a position. I don't remember all the specifics now. I think he had a Revoker and, a, and it was a 3-power Eldrazi. And I did not attack a turn I should have. And he went to, like at 5 life, so he had to block. I would have traded... I would have traded the mentor and one of my tokens for both of his creatures, and I would have been left with like I think one or two tokens, mm-hmm. because I, what I did is I played Mox Opal, Mox Opal into his, into his chalice mm-hmm. and Nullrod. It didn't matter. He had Crucible like Ghost Quarter Recursion. I see. Um, but but I all I had to do was play zero spells, and my deck is full of them, right? <laughs> I mean I have yeah. I have Force, I have uh, all these Moxen probes, all that kind of thing. And had I done that, I would have had two tokens against him having no board and he, him being like a three life. Mm-hmm. So I just needed two attacks to win the game and I would have won my last match. Um, but the point is that I should have beaten Nullrod. We both agreed at the end of the game I should have beaten Nullrod. That was the only game I lost to Nullrod. So this deck can actually beat Nullrod without... It's not. It does not, like unlike what LSV said, does not lose to Nullrod. I wanted to point out one other thing about LSV. I watched his match. And one thing he didn't that you can do, and Kevin, I'm sure, is so everyone knows the top paradoxical outcome tree mm-hmm. where you activate top um with paradoxical do the same thing with hercules recall yeah where you can activate top and and he was like in one of his games he had hercules and all this mana and he he was like trying to dig and he didn't see that play yeah. but he would have been able to dig another car a lot deeper actually had he done that yep just, uh, just one three. more of the benefits of hercules recall yeah so t- tell me more about your other your other match was it the same thing where you had a turn one kill but they both roughly yeah they're both roughly the same but i can tell you that the first one that I had was especially sweet because I, it was against Belcher. <laughs> so <Nice. laughs> the thing is, is that it was it was um it was game one against Belcher, and I just turn one him, and then game two I forced his turn one Belcher and killed him, and probably two turns later I had really really strong draws against Belcher that round, but that was only round two, and I I honestly can't remember how my other turn one went, but it was against Tribal Eldrazi. So. In a sense, I beat I beat Nullrod also, but it wasn't yeah. ever in play. <laughs> That's so awesome. Or on the you stack. One Belcher. <laughs> you know, one question that people might have and what about it is how our deck fares against shops. We did so much shop preparation. Mm-hmm. Why don't you talk a little? Well, I, mean, I obviously played a lot because I had a winning matchup against shops, despite I mean a winning record against shops in the event, including against the best shop pilots out there. Yeah, I, um, I also. But I still lost a couple of matches. I also had Why a winning just... record. I went, I faced shop three times and went two and one. And the, one of the things, one of the key things we realized was uh, related to what you said about swords to plowshares. You don't want to try and swords a mentor in the mentor mirror, quote unquote. We also realized that we really didn't care about most of the creatures in the workshop decks, even though they're heavily creature based. Is that we just wanted to be the the best and fastest mentor deck that you can be in that matchup and you already alluded to how you can play through spheres right spheres are not the end of the world like they would be for some gush decks sometimes yeah no, nor is tabernacle really a problem either because yeah. you can you have all the mana you have, all, the world you have to tons of mana it. yeah it's it, one yeah. of the things to, to quickly realize about this deck is it just unlike the gush it's deck, different it grows yeah. its mana turn over turn it's and you can it's a totally different frame of mind than playing the gush deck so yeah. people are listening to us and thinking about mentor in a gush deck it's orthogonal to that. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you can you can just out mana the the workshop decks and exactly. And so you have to you have to reevaluate reevaluate your threat assessment when you're playing against workshops because your goal is to find and resolve mentor 
and anything that doesn't actively stop you from finding a resolving mentor is actually yeah. okay. The, Ignore they it. Can yeah, sphere, <laughs> you, they can play a sphere, and you and they can play a revoker on your mocks, and they can play a even a thought not seer, right? You're yeah. still just trying to churn through and find mentor, and <laughs> once you do that. The, the modern workshop decks have not, it's important to keep in mind, the modern workshop decks have not evolved to answer mentor in many ways. There, no. There's no big trump card. It's all no, indirect. It's all indirect, yeah. right? It's all, I'm, I'm the sphere deck, I'm going to try and deny you the mana. Besides ensnaring bridge, but ensnaring bridge is still imperfect. Yeah, yeah, it's not very good against us. Um, so they're, they're trying, they might have dismember, and they might have, and you know, that and that stinks. If you just find a mentor and you can only play it and maybe one other card the same turn, Getting your mentor dismembered a is a bummer, yeah. That that could be a game-losing sequence if you can't find a second mentor. But Tabernacle, as Steve said, is not that big of a deal. You'd have to be quite unlucky and have you know a very light, very mana-light draw and have them wasteland you a bunch for them to be able to get rid of your mentor with Tabernacle. And otherwise, it's just it's all about threat assessment. And I think playing the matchup a number of times in testing will will teach you how different the threat assessment is for workshops than the, the traditional Gush build. Yes, this is not a, a Gush Mentor deck. It's very different. Mm-hmm. One of the things I love about this deck is how good it is against the Gush decks. Yeah. It's really it's really weird because it's hard for them to stop you if you time things right. Mm-hmm. Now, now, of course, we went into this event. We went into this event banking on the fact that Gush decks are running an all-time low number of Null Rod effects. Yeah. That may change forward. Mm-hmm. But but this but still I, I feel very good playing this deck against Gush decks even with null rods knowing that I have so many ways of yeah it, it's worth noting too that the, the traditional now pyroblast is still a fine card against you right it's still perfectly good yeah. against paradox of yeah, yeah I was just about to say flusterstorm is actually not that hot and you might say well geez you're playing a ton of spells every turn yeah but the thing that matters is the first one. The, the first spell, yeah. when you put that first paradoxical outcome on the stack, it, picture this. You have an opener that has just a modest number of mana accelerants. Maybe you've got one or two moxen, and you don't have turn one mentor or anything amazing like that. But you play a turn one seat into a preordain, and you find another mox. And maybe you play a top, or maybe you play a probe, or maybe you're lucky enough to have thought cast, although that's unusual on turn one. But you still end your first turn with two, with two or three artifacts in play, thanks to your tink, uh, thanks to your your cantriping. You go into your next turn and you play another land, and depending on the configuration of out, of artifacts you had, you might have six mana. <laughs> you might be able yeah. to. You might have through your other cantrips. You might be able to play turn two thought cast, and that's not a very good flusterstorm target, right? Just just a thought cast. Oh, no. yeah. And if you resolve no, thought cast, thought cast is basically like our deck's gush. Exactly. It's a it draws two cards. It's a kind of the same level of conditionality. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, is that if they don't, if they don't flusterstorm that thought cast, then you're drawing in. You're almost certain to draw into at least one more mana source and then another cantrip, right? That's just all this deck is. It's either that or mentors. Yeah. So then you get into turn. Maybe that later that turn you play a, a, a mentor, and they can't flusterstorm that, right? Then it's in plow or no at that point, or you just find more accelerants and you can trip more and you probe them more and you get to turn three sometimes and you've got eight or nine mana. And then that you yep. just pool it all, tap your top, cast Paradoxical Outcome, and they look at Flusterstorm and say, this isn't getting me anywhere. It might get a spell later in that turn, but at that point the damage is done. Yeah. So and, yeah, don't be don't live in fear of Flusterstorm of this deck because you can play around it pretty strongly. 
But Steve, yeah, you made. I, I you, love. I love this deck. This deck is such a cantrip deck. You made I a mean, good. It has all the cantrips. Yeah, yeah, it's max cantrips. You made a good observation about how this, the presence of this deck and the other more TPS style paradoxical outcomes decks like Reed, could in, lead to an increase in Stony Silence in the Mentor deck. Uh, sorry, the Gush based Mentor deck. Un, yeah, which is really interesting because of the array of Gush decks that we've seen right now. I mean, I mean in the past, not right now, but the Delver decks. The Pyromancer, Grixis Pyromancer, the bigger mana mentor. I mean, it's no reason that Nullrod has kind of faded, mm-hmm. which is that Nullrod is really better in the Delver decks because as artifact decks. Mentor decks in the Gush brand, they want all the mana. I mean, Joe Brennan's deck has five Moxen, <laughs> has all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, they want a top. The one, I don't know if you have any thoughts. So anyway, I, I think we'll see some more Stony Silence type effects and no rod effects, but I'm not afraid of it. They're not going to run three or f- They're going to be running one or two, maybe one main deck, one, and we'll have our answers. We'll have Hercules and Fragmentize. I'm fine diluting my deck with a couple of her- Fragmentized mm-hmm. to deal with that. Yeah. You know? And and in, in, even if they do resolve it, if I have a Mentor down by that point, I'm still probably going to win. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> I could still play a lot of Mike's cards off Tundra, the Plains. I can play Moxon for free. Yeah. I can play probe for free, you know. I can misstep and force. Because of how low to the so. ground the deck is, you just you can you can just play expect to play one or two spells a turn, even through Stony yeah. Silent, even with only one mana. <clears throat> yeah. You know, you I'm, it one of the pieces of data that we don't really have about the the whole metagame for Vintage Champs is the breakdown of the Gush decks, and I, I expect that Ryan and Matt will provide us with that at some near future point. But they've, you know, they really worked under a deadline to get us the top 32 and 64 information. We're greatly appreciated. Right, but yeah. th- thinking about what you just said about Stony Silence and the other existing Gush decks and such, I just did a little bit of a scan. There's one, one singular copy, not deck, but copy of Young Pyromancer in the top 64. That's wow. that's really surprising. And I didn't expect Young yeah. Pyromancer to be good in this event. I think it's, I actually think it's actively poorly positioned. Yep. But yep. oh, how the mighty have fallen! I mean, that's no, that's well, really an interesting well, turning point in the format. Well, it, it's interesting. There's for um, a couple of reasons. One is that we saw for a time kind of this surge of Grixis Pyromancer as a metagame to mentor, mm-hmm. like as a as a counterpoint to mentor. Mm-hmm. But we've also seen Pyromancer, perhaps more importantly, as the buddy, as the <laughs> the complement to mentor. Right. And this this event kind of solidifies that no. It's not Pyromancer that's the buddy to mentor. It's Jace Friend's Prodigy, which yeah. we've seen before, but it's more clearly the case now. That's a very good point. Um, and the one appearance um, of Pyromancer is exactly that. It's a one of in Vito Picoso's list, which is a mentor list. Yeah, yeah, he's interesting. I um, but I really like our deck. For it. I think that like people looking at our deck list and saying, well, that's really positioned against all the Null Rod decks going forward. I think that's a mistake. I'm, but um. And I think our deck is going to... I think our deck presents a real blue threat to Gush decks. A, a real one that can endure, which is exciting for me, I think. Because people have been complaining about the lack of competition among other blue decks for Gush decks, but don't you think this deck can can present a real competitor to them? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you and I both kind of wanted to face a whole bunch of blue decks. Big blue decks, begging. other Gush decks. Yeah, that's yeah I was... If, <laughs> if you and I... Butter. I feel like if you and I had faced the... the a breakdown of opponents that match the overall metagame that one of us would have top aided because the deck <laughs> against the the overall metagame that we have outlined here today, 
I think our deck matches up very well. I mean, yeah, if you were to take I, the, the I major a, archetype... I made a lot of mistakes. I made a lot of play mistakes. And one other one I made, I I followed our shop's sideboard plan against White Eldrazi, mm-hmm. and it was a huge mistake. <laughs> I, would, I, I would have been able to combo out, and I lost a match like just sitting on did nothing. I do think fragmentizes. I do think White Eldrazi pr- produces an, a, a challenging tension for the sideboard strategy for this deck because it's a yes. creature-based deck, but it's also got the, the you know the the thorns and thorns and, and the but thalias. But it doesn't have null rod. But it doesn't. But it doesn't have null rod. But and so I oversideboarded yeah. against it. Oversideboarding yeah, is a, is a, is a risk with this deck. <clears throat> well, I think we should move on to our question. Oh, one, of, go ahead. One one just last thing I wanted to point in. Kevin, going forward, I would seriously consider playing a third top in our deck mm-hmm. over something, because this, I mean, I really like how Brian Palace had three top. I mean, I kind of felt like in testing we wanted two and a half tops, but the, the thing is that this deck brings into focus more than any other deck is that you the marginal value of the second top is pretty annoying. In fact, if you have a top in play and a top on top of your library, the number of monk tokens you can produce <laughs> has a formula of x equal to the number the amount of mana you have access to yeah. which is pretty amazing so if you have nine mana up <laughs> and you have a top and play and a top on top of your library you don't have to do anything just say to your opponent i'll top nine times yeah nine bombs you know if they've seen them right if they've seen them i did i did close out cut. one game against an opponent by doing all that i went through the motions and i think my my opponent understood well, much earlier in the process than i needed to than I needed to be explicit, but yeah, just yeah. I'll, I'll top, I'll draw this top, I'll play this top, I'll tap this top. Yeah, I'll, I mean, I'll if, if you have top. two top, exactly, if you have two <laughs> tops in play and you activate one and put the top on top, all you have to do is just say, yeah. can I, I tap this nine mana, do this nine times, yeah. okay? All right, you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the double top scenario is pretty fun, and I would support the third one, finding room for it, yeah. It fits, it fits very good synergy with lots of uh, features of the deck. Yeah, I mean, like you said, like fighting Fluster, it's good against that. Mm-hmm. You know, you can like top on your opponent's end step to Paradoxical Outcome to, if, if they, there's a moment where they let the, their defensive down, mm-hmm. all kinds of situations. So Yep, very flexible. Pretty cool. I think we should move on to our question of the show, which takes a little bit of a different form than we usually do, because we're expecting our next show to be our last show of 2016. And it'll be our year-end wrap-up, which has become something of a treat for us these last few years. And for long-term fans who know, that features our Moxie Awards. So we <laughs> we want to get out ahead of that because we we haven't been good about doing this in the in the past years. We want to ask all of you, what are your nominations for the Moxies this year? And by we have four categories. Yep. By reminder, those four categories are best card. Best set of the year. Of the, best new card. Best, sorry, yeah, best new card. Year. Yep. Best yeah. new set, best deck, and best story. The last one being intentionally open ended. So hit us up on Twitter, on uh, via email, or in response to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. Twitter is probably the best to get our attention. But best card, new card for this year. Best new set for this year. The deck. Now deck. Could be a new deck for the year, or it could be a reemergence of an older one, and the best story of the year in your eyes. Good, good. Please, please um, make some nominations, Mm -hmm. because we want to have a lot of options to consider. Um, (laughs) Usually, we just kind of decide at the end of the the, podcast, but, uh, but this is a big deal here. We've got a lot of competitive sets. I mean, we've got the Eldrazi set, we've got Kaladesh, we've got certainly... 
you know, it's interesting. We didn't really talk about a lot about this, but one of the sets that didn't make the big impact in uh, in the Vintage Champs was the um, was the um, conspiracy. Yeah, conspiracy too. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly going to be on our on our nomination form. Mm-hmm. So uh, nominate some some of your favorite <laughs> decks, storylines, cards, and sets. <laughs> Definitely. And thank you for listening to episode 59 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at Many Insane Plays or email us at So Many Insane Plays Podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next year, we wish you many insane plays. Game. <laughs> <laughs>